Hello, everybody. You might be a little surprised to see this pop up in your feed. Uh, as always, I'm Mike. I'm Tom. There we go. We've never done that before. I, I think it might be something for us to do in the new season, since some people don't know which one of us is which. Um, uh, <laughs> but to be clear, this is not the new season. If you saw this pop up on your feed, that doesn't mean season three uh, has started yet, though it is coming. It is in the works. We're already talking to folks, and it should be in your feed soon enough. So what is this? Well, we're doing a special bonus episode themed to the Palm d'Or, the top prize of the Con Film Festival. Why? Uh, because our friends over at Podcast Like It's 1999 are winding down. They were kind enough to have us on their show uh, to talk about 1999's Palm d'Or winner, Rosetta, uh, which has a lot in common with the films that Tom and I have been on their show to cover before. Uh, if you've listened to us on podcasts like it's 1999, you know if we're on, it represents quality, game-changing cinema. A lot like, of crossover. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't think Universal Soldier 2 or Honey, I Shrunk the Kids won the Palm Door, but I believe they were in contention, right? There were talks. There were talks, yeah. yeah. Um. No, I mean, obviously they weren't, but but um, we thought it might be fun over on our feed to kind of cross-promote that episode. Um, and Tom and I are going to take the opportunity now to talk about our top 10 favorite Palm Door winners. Uh, some of them might be in the National Film Registry. Some of them never will be because they're not American films. Um, we don't get a chance on this show to talk about non-American films much because we are focused on the registry. So this would be kind of a fun departure for us and to kind of, you know, help uh, throw a little more attention to our Rosetta appearance, which you can find on the podcast. Like it's 99 feed. What's up, Kyle? And if I may, to just, you know, give a shout out to our listenership because, you know, we don't have just listenership in the United States. This is true. This is true. We have listeners, uh, from a surprising amount of countries, and uh, maybe we'll be talking about uh, yours uh, today, you know. Um, but we also want to use this opportunity to tell folks, please go over, check out podcasts like it's 1999 if you haven't already. If you're listening to this show, you probably have. Phil and Kenny have been on our past two seasons. They're going to be on our next season. They're very good friends of ours. Um, but please go over to their feed. Check out our episode on Rosetta. Uh and kind of, you know, you can bounce between. Uh, you can choose this as kind of a follow-up to that, or you can listen to this, then listen to that. But definitely check that out. We were very happy to do it. Because, uh, again, we don't get a chance uh, on here to talk about uh, foreign language films too much or international films too much. So a very cool opportunity to do. Um, so Tom and I have kind of ranked our top 10 Palme d'Or winners based on what we've seen. Let's talk a little bit before we start about the Palm d'Or and the Cannes Film Festival. Uh, Tom, just to kick us off, when, if you know, when did you first kind of become aware of the Palm d'Or and Cannes and kind of like what it means? Because it holds this weird place in the, the the award holds this weird place in film culture. Uh, I don't know if I could specifically remember when it got into my purview um it just feels like a thing that was always around 
And I guess it's just been in, around so long that I can't remember a time beforehand. If I had to guess, uh, it was probably probably sometime around high school because there is a movie that won the Palm Door when I was in high school that is going to be on my list, so I won't spoil it just yet, that I don't think I would have heard of if it didn't have that buzz about it. So I must have heard it then, but you know, there are, there are other movies on my list here that I saw before that movie that in my never ending fucking time spent on IMDb falling down trivia rabbit holes and stuff and Wikipedia and whatnot. I must've heard about it before then. So that's, I, you know, that's why I can't really say for sure when exactly I, I remember it coming into my, my life. So I, I think that one thing that's interesting about, the Cannes Film Festival in general. I mean, I guess it's like the Palm d'Or gets talked about with uh, kind of the same importance as something like a Best Picture win, right? Or a yeah. BAFTA win or, or something like that. Um, so I think people who don't really know would be forgiven for thinking it has the same kind of breadth of uh, options as Best Picture, right? But... Obviously, the films that are in competition for the Palme d'Or are only the films that play at that year's Cannes Film Festival. So one thing that's interesting about this award is while it does carry a lot of weight, you know, I mean, a lot of films, especially now, I think, get marketed on, well, this won the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival, right? Um, it carries a weight. It carries a prestige. And especially if the Palm goes to a movie that doesn't seem like an art film, they love leaning into that in the marketing. Titan had a lot of fun leaning into like this movie won the Palm. The one that did it so well that I remember vividly is uh, is Pulp Fiction. Um, you watch those early trailers for Pulp Fiction, and they're having so much fucking fun with showing you gunfire and violence, and then having a voice go, "Winner of the Palm d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival," you know. Um, yeah. So it's super interesting in in that regard. Um, we should also clarify when we're talking about the Palm Door today. Not every film we talk about necessarily won the Palm Door, the Golden Palm. Some years of the Cannes Film Festival, the top prize was actually called the Grand Prix. Um, I think. Let me you know, just for clarity's sake, like from nineteen fifty. I'm sorry, nineteen sixty four uh, through to nineteen seventy four, the top prize was actually referred to as the Grand Prix du Festival du, uh, du, the Grand Prix du Festival International du Film. Uh, and other years, it was the Palme d'Or. There's also cases where some years, two films tie for the Palme. Uh, in the earliest version of the Cannes Film Festival, in 1946, they actually gave it out to like 10 different films at the same time. And in 1947, they broke the palm up into categories like best social film and best animation design. Um, but now they kind of consider, well, if it won the Grand Prix, it won the palm. If it was during that, ca yeah, it was during that time. So our ter our phrasing this as Palm d'Or is really just whatever won the top prize at Cannes. So that's the group that we're pulling from for our top 10. We should also clarify, number one, this is our personal top 10 you know, it's coming from our own personal place. Uh, also, neither of us has seen all 99 films that have won the top <laughs> yeah. prize of the Cannes Film Festival. 
I can say I have at this point seen 60 out of the 99. My hope is that by the time this episode drops, I will have watched as many of them as I can, and I can post my full rankings on socials for anybody who cares. Um, maybe there is a world where we end up watching something a year from now, two years from now, and go, oh, shit, that should have been in there. But I like to think, you know, when you're dealing with the Palme d'Or, like, yes, there are certain movies that are uh, really bad that one because in some cases they just were a, a rough crop right it's the yeah. same way with best picture like there are certain years that we look at and like a bad movie wins or a not particularly great movie wins but then you look at the lineup they were up against to go yeah i don't really know i don't really know what i was voting for here right like you know i'm, I'm not going to name any particular years but i think like i always think of like the year of Kiss the Spider Woman doesn't win, but it's one of those years where like whatever is in there is like a whole stretch of fine. Um, same with Cannes Film Festival, you know. But at the same time, there are some canonical classics that win the Palme d'Or, like movies that are just the all-time classics. So I I think it's safe to say you know our top ten likely not going to shift, but you never know. Um, all of this is just spiel. Uh, rambling writing, but uh, I, yeah, yeah, I think there's definitely a good chance. I mean, at least for me, because I haven't seen sixty of them. Yeah, uh, I've seen probably in the twenties. Um, and just looking at some of the stuff that I have missed, I'm like, yeah, I could see myself like probably falling kind of head over heels for this movie or that movie or whatever. Um, I mean, it's definitely going to be interesting, you know. I mean, I, I told Mike that I just bought one that was a Palme d'Or winner today that I haven't seen because, you know, I just buy movies I haven't seen. Why not? Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, there, there's even with my limited uh, exposure to all of these movies, there's some where I'm already just going to be like, eh, I don't know what you guys are doing here. I mean, good, good attempt, but uh, yeah, big, big old whiff. Big ol' whiff. Yeah, I mean, like, so what we're going to do for this episode, just for a little fun, uh, is we are going to start going through our top ten. What we're going to do is we're going to go back and forth. I'm going to say my number ten, talk a bit about it, and then Tom will say his back and forth. If a movie that I name is not in Tom's list, then we're going to talk about it when it comes up on mine, or vice versa. But if I name something and Tom has it higher on his list... We'll sort of table the back and forth banter uh, until we get to its higher placement, if that makes sense. Just to clarify to anybody, you know, the way we're we're working this here. And obviously, uh, if I've seen it and it's not in my top ten and Tom names, it I'll say where I put it in my rankings, you know, so on and so forth. Uh, and then I think we're gonna wrap up talking about we're gonna have Tom take a guess which movies that won the Palm Door are also in the National Film Registry, which is what we normally discuss here on You're Missing Out. Uh, You're Missing Out, colon, a podcast about the National Film Registry, as our title now reads. Uh, and, you know, we'll talk a little bit, get a little more hype for season three, but uh, this is what we're doing. I think it's going to be kind of fun. It's a little off the beaten path. So I guess without further ado, we'll get into our top ten. Um, not a lot of suspense here, I would say, in terms of, like, Tom and I have known each other a long while. We know what movies we like. So I don't know if there will be a lot of surprises for each other. 
But I got news for you, Tom. I got one big surprise coming for you right out the gate. Let's talk I about mean, all right, let's get into it. 10. So Tom and I were talking about this over this process. We decided we were doing this a little while ago, and I was working my way through catching up on all the Palm Door winners I hadn't seen or hadn't seen in forever. You know, just trying to give myself as much research as I could. But I was remarking to him that my top 10 was very difficult to break into, right? The top 10 that I had had months ago stayed pretty consistent. Now, a lot of movies entered into the number 12 or number 13 slot, uh, you know, or number 15 or what have you, you know, things like Kajimusha or I Revisited Paris, Texas, which I hadn't seen since college. And I was like, that shot way the hell up, but nothing could crack uh, that top 10 because my number 10 for a very long time was Rome Open City, the uh, the Rossellini film. Uh, Rome Open City is an incredible movie, you know, one of those Italian neorealist films uh, about the, you know, the occupation, and it's incredible, and I love Rome Open City. Um, I was really looking forward to talking about Rome Open City as my number 10, and it felt like nothing was going to crack that ceiling because it's fucking Rome Open City, right? I think that's a pretty fair floor to have on that top 10 and very hard to break but something finally did it and i will say tom you know my affection for rome open city as well right yeah you know so not surprising that that was very hard to break that ceiling but something did which might surprise you and what it was i think will absolutely surprise you for how long you've known me but it came up in my many many palm winter watches this past month my number 10 is a movie called The Tree of Life by director Terrence <laughs> Malick. Wow. Yeah. Holy shit. <laughs> I I am not in any way a Terrence Malick fan. Um, I, I like Badlands to a degree. Um, I find Days of Heaven Interminable... Um, Thin Red Line, I, I could barely get through. Uh, what was it? The New World? Is that what it's called? Right? The New, the new World, world is, yeah. and New Land is the... Yeah, so New World, couldn't get through. And when Tree of Life came out, I think I had gotten a screener copy of it, and I got halfway through it back in 2011 and, like, shut it off. What? Fuck you. So I don't love Terrence Malick. By the way, Terrence Malick's films, some of them are in the registry, and they're going to come up on this show. And when we do them as proper episodes, I'm going to treat them the same way we treat any film on this show and treat it academically. But he's just never been my guy. And so I decided I never gave Tree of Life a proper turn. And it's one of those ones where, like, I know Tom has seen it, so maybe he'll talk about it. Maybe I should just watch it as a point of reference. And uh, I, I threw it on this time. And just everything worked. And it didn't just work like, oh, I think this movie is good. But every single thing locked into place on this where I I cried multiple times. Um, I thought that the journey that it takes you on um, with obviously the Brad Pitt, you know, uh, era storyline, the Sean Penn storyline, the creation of the universe and the dinosaurs – Every part of that just worked for me, resonated with me. Um, 
I mean, I think I've seen it described as an experimental film, and I think it is. I think that the more that I've gotten into the work of, of Stan Brackage or House Frampton, like, and kind of being able to embrace that that non-narrative structure or find the story within a non-traditional narrative structure really helped. But God, every part of this movie hit, and and that ending with Jessica Chastain, I give up my son, just blew me away. Um, it's we complain a lot about modern movies being insanely didactic when they go, it's about grief. But here is a movie that is actually about the lingering feelings of grief and loss that speaks to that so profoundly. So I have gone from being absolutely apathetic to the works of Terrence Malick to thinking that Tree of Life is arguably the greatest American film made in the last like, 15 years. I did not, never in a million years would I have expected that. Um, it knocked me out. I think it's incredible. I think it is something we're going to talk about deserving a place in the registry. And I think it's something oh, we're going to walk repeatedly. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. So tree of life unexpectedly shockingly is my number 10. And I think uncle Terry, uh, you know, I might have to revisit some of your other movies. I might have to take a dive into the night of cups. Who knows? I don't know. It worked for me this time. Tree of life is my number 10 Palm d'Or winner of all time. Yeah, that's not in my top 10. Uh, I didn't have the kind of vitriol that you did for it at one point, but I don't love it. Uh, Again, uh, you know, it has been a while, so it might hit a little harder for me this time. And I am a little more accepting of, I should say not a little more. I was a lot more accepting of Malik than you were because I I really liked Badlands. I still haven't seen Days of Heaven, but I love The Thin Red Line. And I really do love The New World. And uh, I think I, you know, I think Tree of Life fits into what he does. I think in many, for a lot of people, it's kind of his magnum opus of everything he's ever uh, uh, attempted and just completely achieved in one package. Uh, I don't know if I, I I feel that way. I remember at the time thinking it was good, but I think a little long, and the 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 dinosaur stuff was kind of just a little like, all right, I get it, but you know, let me get back to the humans, you know, um, still better than Jurassic world dominion, but, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I would definitely want to give it a try again. I do think it is probably his last great gasp as a filmmaker. He, he banged out a lot more movies after the tree of life than he did like the first 40 years of his career. Um, and nobody talks about them anymore. So he, um, he did, yeah, he did like very few films at the start of his career. After Tree of Life, cranked out like Knight of Cups, Song to Song, To the Wonder, and also produced a documentary about a rapper who died. Remember yeah. that? Like, what's his yeah. face? Uh, Kyle knows. Kyle knows what I'm talking about. Lil Peep. Is that it? Lil Peep? Oh my god, that's right. It's the Lil Peep, the Everybody's Everything documentary. I completely forgot about that connection. Yeah, shout yeah. out Peep. It was his birthday that... a couple weeks ago. Okay. Um... <laughs> See, this is the thing. That, what Tom just did, by all accounts, should be reclusive artistic filmmaker Terrence Malick's reaction to the concept of Lil Peep. But instead, he <laughs> produced a documentary about... Low peep. Like, imagine if we just fucking found out, like, 
before he died, Jean-Luc Godard made a documentary about XXXTentacion, or whatever the fuck his name is. Jean-Luc like, Godard made a documentary on XXXTentacion? I mean, maybe. Like, truly, maybe. Maybe that's what the image book is about. I still don't fucking know. By the way. They made a lot of movies. The image book won a special Palme d'Or. We're not counting that. It wouldn't have been in Tom's list anyway, but we're just not counting the special palm for image, but it's got to be competitive. I just want to clarify. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let me just put it, the, it because it was a special award. There is no regular award where John Luca Dart is ending up on my list. Unless it's a list of palm door winners who I wish died earlier. Um, I just had breathless on earlier today. Uh, sorry, Tom, I didn't mean to cut you off. If you had anything else to say about Tree Life. No, um, it's, you know, it's a movie I respect a lot, and uh, of all the movies I've seen that are on the Palm Door winner list, um, there's only one, no, there's only two I don't actively like, and The Tree of Life is not one of them, so it's it's not in my top ten, but it's still, like, a good movie that I would say people should watch, because they might get more out of it than me, a Malik fan, or for someone who's not a Malik fan, it might be the thing that clicks the lament cube into place for them it's funny you said i i've watched 60 of them and i only have three palm winners that i actively dislike so it's we're in the same boat with that in terms of like muslim fine at least yeah i mean you know i'm sure there's one that's going to be higher up in your 10 that i that we 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 saw together that you yes. know i don't really care for but i'm still but not going to be like it's I'll say, bad i'll say this and we'll talk about it more when we get to it i'll say this if Tree of Life is one that you think, like, you know what, now that I'm older, maybe I'd resonate with more, that's definitely one of them, too. But b before any further ado, um, Tom, what is your number 10? Uh, my number 10 is, um, I don't have, like, a long preamble about how my rankings shifted, because I didn't do any homework for this. <laughs> uh, I made my list, like, a month ago for Kenny and Phil, and then I, I didn't look back until we recorded today. Um, so my number 10 is Barton Fink. Uh, it's a movie that I didn't see until uh, maybe a year or two ago. Uh, it was something I was trying to get all the Coen Brothers movies like finally like knocked out on my list. And I have. So I've seen all the Coen Brothers movies. And, you know, there was a time, I, I think around college, a little after that, where I said I was a little more apathetic on the Coens. There were movies I loved, but then there was a bunch I didn't really care for. But it's something where as I've gotten older, I would say I'm a big Coen Brothers fan, even though I have to add the caveat, I didn't love their last, what, three movies? What, uh, well, I didn't like Buster Scruggs. I didn't like Hail Caesar. What was before Hail Caesar? Was that Simple, Plan Simple Man or? No, no, no. Um, no. Wouldn't that have been Lewin Davis? Because you like Lewin Davis. Oh yeah, that's what, okay. So yeah, so like Lou and Davis was like the last time I loved that stuff. But well, like before the that, the spates where they kind of have like a bit of like one or two weird off ones. Well, I mean, the only time I would say they before Inside Lou and Davis, they're only off ones in my opinion, at least. I know we differ on this. Is I mean, not on these two movies, but on the other movies. Yeah, is Lady Killers and Intolerable Cruelty, two absolute dog shit movies that should be lit a flame and put in front of Billy Madison's neighbor's house. Um, I like the lady killers. And that is because you are a trash person who drives the car of a registered sex but speaking offender. Speaking of burning, I don't like burn after reading. So 
Oh, I love Burn After Reading. Um, yeah, uh, anyway. But it, but having finished all their movies, you know, I think their batting average is really high. I think they kind of, as a team, went out with a whimper, uh, even though, which one was it? Was it Joel who made Macbeth or Ethan? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know which the one. The one who's married to McDormand yeah. because she's in it. So she was in the house when he Ethan. said, I'm making this movie. And she goes, Sure. I'm not roaming around the Midwest in a van anymore, so I could do this movie for you. Um, so, so having watched Barton Fink, it was kind of eye-opening to me because it felt in many ways like the most them movie they've ever made. It has a little bit of horror, a little bit of comedy, a little bit of crime, a little bit of like sat Hollywood satire that they love to do. It's a lot about storytelling. It's got some amazing performances. How John Goodman didn't even get nominated for this is a fucking crime. Uh, it looks amazing. Somebody did. Who? The fucking, um, now I'm forgetting his name. The guy who runs the studio. The, the, the head really? of the studio. Yes. The, Barton Fink got like three nominations. It got, I think, costume, art direction, and then it got a supporting actor nomination for, I apologize to the actor, I don't remember his name, but the guy who plays the head of the studio who loves Barton until he turns in the script, that guy got a supporting <laughs> a actor bit. nomination. It's it's a good bit. And I love I love everything about the movie. It It hits in its satire of Hollywood and the system in a way that Hail Caesar just doesn't. It feels like they, in the what, 20 years between Hail Caesar and this movie, they, like, lost, I don't know, that edge to really nail Hollywood. Like, it just felt perfectly attuned to what it was trying to say. And I love what it's saying about storytelling and all that. Um, it's just... Uh, I wouldn't say it's my favorite Coen Brothers movie um, because Jeff Bridges isn't stoned in it. <laughs> um... But it's so good and so f funny and weird and insightful and there's really nothing else like it. And gotta be honest, I'm I, I'm pretty surprised it actually won the Palm Door. Um, not because it's not good or they don't pick good movies or anything. It just feels so much more. Not, I don't even know how to say it. Not obtuse because they've picked weird, like obtuse movies before. It just feels so. I don't. I don't even know how to put it. It feels so American, so weirdly Midwestern American, like. And it's about movies, but it's not particularly like back patty about movies the way awards give movies about movies awards. I mean, uh, it's. I mean, if, if, I guess if you're going to pick one of their movies to win a palm, I guess it would be this one. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I love Barton Fink, and I think it's great. I have never been a huge Barton Fink guy. I knew you were going to pick it. And I knew you were going to pick it because, and I'm sure you don't remember this, on our very first episode, Barton Fink was your first ever registry pick. <laughs> was it really? Sunset Boulevard episode, you picked Barton Fink. Um, but, um, Good yeah, I've never been a huge Barton Fink guy, uh, in my rankings of the 60 I've seen, it's number 41. It lands in Oof. between dancer in the dark and friendly persuasion. Um, 
Tom said if he was going to pick a Palm Door winner uh, for the Collins, be that. Um, I will. I will say for me, I would give them if I was giving the Collins a Palm, I'd go like two or three years later, and when Fargo is in competition, I'd give it to that. Um, interesting fact about '91. It's a weird year. Um, you want to talk about American films? Jungle Fever is in the Con Film Festival that year. Um, in terms of American films, as is Bill Duke's A Rage in Harlem and Homicide by David Mamet. Um, okay. Out of that year, I think I probably go Double Life of Verona Gay um, by Krzysztof Koslowski. But anyway, to with Barton Fink, I like it. You know, I, it's like four out of five for me. I do, I do like Barton Fink, but I do find that like it falls into that category of like mid tier Cohen for me, where I still like it, but I do find that like one of the things the Coens and their style of comedy is that I do sometimes find with their movies, whether it's Barton Fink or Hudsucker Proxy or any of those, where I just find myself by the midpoint going, "Yeah, I got it. I got the like I I, I got the joke. I got what we're doing." It's a little bit like my problem with Hail Caesar is I feel like every joke in Hail Caesar goes on for like ten minutes longer than it needs to. Um. But I like Barton Fink. I don't. I don't have anything against the film. To be clear, it's ranked low mostly because we're talking about a lot of these movies are canonical classics. Um, but I did revisit it this year because uh, I had a feeling Tom was gonna uh, pick it, so I wanted to give it another shot. I think Totoro's great in Barton Fink, um, and you do kind of see the seeds of what that movie that that movie plants some seeds for a lot of other things. I think you don't get adaptation without Barton Fink. Um, things like that. So I respect it. I am not against it. I just, it's not as high for me as it would be, um, uh, or as it is for you. Um, I also want to clarify for folks listening. There's going to be a lot. I think a lot of English language movies discussed here. Not all of them, but a lot. It's worth noting that the overwhelming amount of Palm d'Or winners are in English. Like the United States wins a bunch. The UK wins a bunch. New Zealand wins, etc. Then you have movies that are from other countries, like Dance from the Darks from Denmark, but it's in English. So, so it's, you know, it's. I, I promise it's not just us having like an Americentric mentality. It's it's just the way the chips lay. And you um, know, it's 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 funny you say you would pick Fargo instead of Bart, uh, Barton Fink because I don't love Bar- Fargo the way other people do. Interesting. That's one where I where I kind of. I like it. You know, don't get me wrong. I like it. I just find the way people go nuts about that movie a little confusing. I don't get how hard people fall for that movie. Um, You know, I enjoy it. I like it. You know, uh, there's a lot of great shit in there. Great performances. And there's some funny bits. And uh, the wood chipper is a great bit. You know, always, always love seeing Steve Buscemi get mutilated. It's always fun time. But I, I don't know. I think I think the way that movie, uh, I don't know. I guess it's it's just kind of like obvious, or like you were saying, it's like all right, I get it. I get. I it. you know what? I, I want to correct that by the way because my I forgot my all time favorite Cohen movie was at the Cannes Film Festival and is my number one pick that year, which is 2013 Inside Lewin Davis. Uh, that yeah. that is I think the best one. Uh, um, I even put that over Blue is the Warmest Color. You know how much I love that. Um, yeah. anyway, my number nine, I did all that preface about English language films. My number nine is not an English language film. Uh, my number nine is a film, uh, a film that I think is fairly underseen. 
compared to some others. There are some Palm winners that, like, we talk about it on the 99 episode, or we touch on it. I think while Phil and Kenny are reading off winners, they mention uh, a movie that is my number 17, but I think is very good, which is uh, 1995's Underground. Nobody's seen Underground, but I made sure to say, like, that's a good movie. People should watch it. Um, Similarly, my number nine is a film from 1957. It is not discussed when we talk about great films, but it should be, um, which is The Cranes Are Flying out of the Soviet Union. Um, Cranes Are Flying, I had the fortune of seeing this. The film forum actually had a print of it, a restoration that they ran, and my significant other and I went to go see it there. She had never seen it. I had never seen it. Um, Mikhail Kalatsa, uh, Kalatozov is the director. Mikhail Kalatozov. And it's World War II shown from the Russian perspective. And obviously, a thing that barely gets remarked upon in the West is how much Russia suffered and lost during the war. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so it is amazing to see it from that angle. It is a deeply moving film that has some extraordinary visual sequences in it i guess as you would come to expect from from soviet filmmaking at that time but i don't want to spoil it for anybody but there's an incredible sequence during a bombing with shattered glass and 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 waving curtains and uh, a running uh motif about this girl and her stuffed squirrel her bielka it it is a deeply moving and deeply humanist film uh, it doesn't get brought up when we talk about the greatest films. It doesn't get brought up when we talk about the greatest war movies. And I think even in cinephile circles, when they talk about Russian movies, they're typically talking about Andrei Tarkovsky, who I love. But Cranes Are Flying is an incredible movie. It deserves being the conversation. And uh, anybody listening to this, if you have not seen Cranes Are Flying, it's part of the Criterion Collection. It obviously did win the Palme d'Or. Seek it out. I, I highly recommend it. You won't regret it. It's an incredible, incredible work. Uh, I haven't seen it myself. Obviously, I would like to as it's on this list, so I would definitely like to get to it at some point. But it's um, it's pretty funny to talk about foreign language movies leading up to number nine because my number nine is a foreign language film, not in English. And it's uh, even further from the white bread land of Russia and us, us pasty folk uh, because my number nine is... One of my favorites from one of my favorite directors of all time, a man who I think is pretty much got a perfect track record. Uh, my number nine is Kajimusha from Akira Kurosawa. I think it is, I mean, when you look at this guy's fucking career and the fucking unrelenting string of bangers this guy has got, has made, but then there was like a fallow period where he wasn't getting work. And the work he was doing was great. You know, he made a movie in Russia, which I just bought, and it should be coming any day now. Yeah, should be coming any day now. Can't wait to watch that one. Uh, But even that, you know, had presence at all sorts of award ceremonies. It was a big, you know, the guy was still doing good work. But, you know, he was difficult. He made long movies. He ran up budgets, all this shit. So he wasn't getting work. So it took the little little handiwork of, of of fellows... Uh, filmmakers uh, George Lucas and Steven Spielberg and Francis Ford Coppola to throw their money together and say, hey, this guy inspired the shit out of us. George, quite literally, with Star Wars. Let's get this guy money to make the fucking movies he wants to make. 
And the first thing he does with that backing is make Kajimusha. Basically his Prince and the Pauper. But being that it's Kurosawa, it is like the coolest fucking thing in the world. It's one of the most beautiful movies you will ever see. I mean, it's not to say that the movies he made back in the day in black and white weren't good looking movies. They were gorgeous movies. But when you see what he's done, what he got to do with color and widescreen filmmaking, you just go, fuck. It's almost like when we talked about on the searches, you go, man, John Ford really, when he had color and a widescreen palette, you're just like, man, nobody was, nobody was, was able to do it. Imagine if he did that 20 or 30 times instead of black and white square photography, 20 or 30 times. Um, I think this movie is like, honestly a mind blower. And if it wasn't for like seven samurai, and, you know, maybe, and you know, Seven Samurai and High and Low, I think this and Ron would be like my one and two Kurosawa wow. movies. Okay. I, I think that, I think his last, this last stretch of his with the American backing of Lucas Spielberg and Coppola and all those guys and Scorsese, you know, with Dreams, I think he made, I think he made some of the best movies of his entire career. And I think this is an unbelievable movie. And I'm really glad, uh, I'm really glad it won because... Uh, unless my eyes deceived me looking through the list, this is the only time a Kurosawa movie won, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And it couldn't have happened to a fucking... I mean, it could have. There's like two or three I say are better, <laughs> I think, than Kajimusha, but couldn't happen to like a cooler fucking movie with a great backstory of the men he helped inspire, which who then changed Hollywood, paying it forward and letting this master uh, make some more movies before he passed on. Also love the backstory of... You know, Ishiro Honda quits filmmaking. He was the Godzilla guy, but but you know, Curse. I was like, no, you're a great filmmaker. Like, you did good shit. Your your monster movies like work good. W- like, work with me as my co-director because I'm kind of losing my eyesight. Like, help me out here. So I love that little bit of just like on this one movie, like all kinds of different elements of the film world coming together to make a movie and make a great movie. And you know. I think if anybody wants to get into Kurosawa, I think this would be a great place because it's a story you you can already like you already got a hold of, but it's not. You know, I think Ron with its King Learisms could be a little harder to digest for people if they're not into what he's doing, especially because it's in Japanese, and I know that could be a a, a hurdle for people to overcome. But it looks so good that you just get lost in it, and it's such so simple but packs such a punch that I think Kajimusha absolutely has to be on this list and the fact that i love it this much and it's only number nine goes to show i got some fucking i got some fucking nolan ryan fastballs coming down the pipe um i agree with virtually everything tom said i really like kajimusha quite a bit it's not in my top 10 it's my number 16 so it's still in my top 20 and that's i mean truly a case of just when i consider the things that go above it like it's tough it feels stupid to have that that have it that low for how impressive a film it is, um, but it's just the way it works out. But the other thing I will say is because Tom said he only has like two movies he puts above it, which is interesting. You don't put Rashomon above it. No, but I mean that's just again a case of like he made so many movies you would like let li- li- like rank ten out of ten where it's just like well what, what what's your preference that's, here basically so you know, that's that's the thing I would say about that's the thing I would say about Kajimusha is. I think the interesting thing about Kajimusha is it is mid-tier or upper mid-tier Kurosawa. It's not even in, like, I think the best 
Akira Kurosawa movies and is also the best movie most other filmmakers could ever hope to make. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, oh, yeah. if you saw Kajimusha, you would go, and you didn't know anything else, you're like, clearly this is the guy's masterpiece. In the same way that, like, uh, you and I have talked about, I think it's Scorsese is someone we talk about, where we talk about, like, there are certain movies where you go, like, this is not, like, Casino is not anybody's conversation, like, well, that's Scorsese's best movie. But it would also be the best movie that, most other filmmakers could hope to make. It just happens to be yeah. you're such a master of the craft. Um, so that, again, that's why Kajimusha for me is like, it's it's so weird. Or, or uh, an example we talk about a lot is The Post. That if yeah. The Post was made by a different director with a different cast, it would be spotlight. Like you'd be like, well, this is a fucking, this is incredible. Attention must be paid. But it just comes from such a pedigree that you're spoiled and go like, well, of course. Um, but I really like Kajimusha, but it's my number 16. Just that was a couple things to go above it. But I respect the hell out of it, and I agree with Tom folks should should check it out. Um, I, I really enjoy Kajimusha, too. Um, my number eight uh, is actually, Tom, you gave me a perfect segue here. Oh, oh I did? Yeah. Kajimusha uh, is at the 1980 Cannes Film Festival. And technically, yes, it wins the Palme d'Or, but it ties for the Palme d'Or. Uh-huh. Uh it ties for the Palme d'Or. Uh, we talked about how many movies Kurosawa made and what a long career he had. It ties for the Palme d'Or with a film from a director who did not get to make many films and is not even best known as a director to some people. Um, my number eight is Bob Fosse's All That Jazz. Hell yeah. um, I, I love these kind of director buildings, Roman films. You know, All That Jazz is kind of... Bob Fosse does eight and a half, except... Instead of Fellini seeing himself as a fanciful man-child, Bob Fosse sees himself as just a chaotic agent of destruction <laughs> that just ruins just a, the lives of everyone around him. Just a drug-addicted sex maniac. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 an incredible movie, and I think that when you look at Fosse's career, like, he makes Sweet Charity. Uh, he makes Sweet Charity, which is a fine enough film, Cabaret, I mean, he wins Best Director for Cabaret, establishes, like, this guy, you know, I get, I should say, he wins the Oscar for Cabaret uh, in the year that The Godfather wins Best Picture, and I think there's a question in some people's minds, maybe, like, Cabaret is an impressive film, but, like, the question is, is Bob Fosse actually a great director, or did he win this Oscar because, oh, it's kind of cool this choreographer can also direct? Uh, Lenny is a bit of a mess for him. But then all that jazz comes along, and there is zero argument. This man was an auteur. This man is a master of his craft in filmmaking. Um, an incredible Roy Scheider performance. Um, incredible editing, which doesn't get talked about enough. Just a remarkable film. And I think another thing that appeals to me is, is one thing I always like in art. Uh, I think about a lot, and this is the analogy I have, is I always love the feeling, the image of, like, I think of a conductor, right, who is on stage just going and going, and you just see the arms flailing and the sweat dripping, and by the time they finish conducting the symphony, they look like they're about to faint. You know, it's the artistic equivalent of, like, they left it all out on the field. All That Jazz is a movie where he left it all out on the field. All That Jazz is a movie that, when you watch it, 
you kind of you know you forget that Star Eighty happened. You almost believe that it that Fosse ended like the movie did, which is he just fucking dies at the end because you're like, what else did he have to give? What yeah. else was in the tank? He he left it all out on the field. So with that and all that preamble, my number nine is is all that jazz. I'm sorry, my number eight. Yeah, my number eight, all that jazz, Bob Fosse. Your number star eighty is all that jazz. <laughs> yeah. um, we'll be talking about this later. Okay. Yeah. Um, I thought so. So we'll just um, we'll skip to my number seven. Uh, oh no, sorry. Well, you we'll, just tell me your we'll number eight. To, of course, we'll skip to yeah, my number oh my eight. Kyle, Cuddle, oh, way to be out. a way to way to be a selfish fucking I'm Bob so, Fosse uh, over there, hogging all long, the attention. You, you bitch. It's been a um, long day. All right, so my number eight is a movie that I subtly referenced earlier of a movie I saw in high school that I that could have been the movie that got me into the idea of the Palm Door being a thing that existed in the world. Um, it's a movie that I fell in love with immediately, and it was one of those movies where it felt like I was sort of as, on a personal level taking like the next step into my cinemaphiledom, where I was starting to like more artsy. And it's not this not like this is even the artsiest movie in the world, but a more patient, introspective, slow, thoughtful, emotional, thematically rich movie that wasn't just like another shoot 'em up or whatever. You know, this is like me taking the next step. And it's a movie that fuck it pisses me off fucking it's been like fifteen years at this point, and I still don't have a home video release of this movie. And I want it so bad because it's one of my favorite movies of all time, uh, even though it's number eight on this list, which, again, got some real heaters coming. But it's uh, The Wind That Shakes the Barley. It's a movie I love. I just I love it so much. The story of two brothers getting caught up in the IRA revolution in the early 1900s and just the sort of beautiful, tragic trajectory these two go on where one is super into the revolution and the other isn't but gets swept up because his brother's in it and then the tables turn and you just watch this almost shakespearean tragedy unfold amidst amidst a historical of you know event and not even an event an an era uh, that just defined a nation that defined the world that still has lingering effects to this day that's still dividing people to this day and the way Ken Loach handles this with such a deft touch it's just it's so fucking masterful and Killian Murphy in this this was you know honestly pro- I, I I honestly maybe saw this because you know the fucking scarecrow was in this movie and I was like okay yeah sure you know Killian Murphy great let's see other things he was in that's why I saw Sunshine you know the Danny Boyle movie um, but this movie is just so fucking good. And I, I, I haven't seen any other Ken Loach movies, but I, I honestly like knowing what I know about Ken Loach and how he can be a little bit of a, yeah, the, the working class kind of guy where his whole movies are just screaming about, you know, the poor and all that. This is just such a subtle, just thought provoking movie that I feel like it would have been easy for this movie to really like pick sides between the brothers on each side of the spectrum where they, you know, from the beginning to the end. But I feel like it really kind of doesn't, it feels like you get why each brother does what they do throughout the movie. 
And, you know, I've said it on the show before and Mike knows this. I got a thing about movies about brothers and uh, I'm a big fan of the IRA. (laughs) 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 So um, it's almost like this movie was tailor made for me and uh, I, I love it. If anybody, if you if you can find this movie, uh, seek it out and watch it. It's it's honestly so fucking good. I, I'm I really love this movie, and I, I hope Criterion one day can actually get a hold of this movie and put it out because I think more people need to get their eyes on it. I I agree with you fully, especially in the Criterion thing, especially because Criterion has put out another Ken Loach film, I Daniel Blake, which also won the Palm Door. And I'm going to do something I never do on this show and be negative and go. That movie fucking sucks. So <laughs> I that is like I Daniel Blake spent a very long time at the very bottom of my Palm Door list for just what an interminable time. But I love When the Shakes of Barley. You and I have talked about When the Shakes of Barley before, uh, and how much we both like it. I really like When the Shakes of Barley. So please understand, when I say that on my list, it's number thirty-four. I need you to know that is because But think about the fact that it is sandwiched between MASH and Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Just to give you an idea of, like, what what we're dealing with, especially as you dive into these movies, um, the the Palme d'Or winners, and you find that, like, weird mix of, like, canonical classics and, like, oh, why is no one talking about this? When the Chicks of Barley is one of those. It's not a canonical film. Um, It's not something that gets talked about all the time, but it should. It is one of yeah. those movies that, like, it wins the palm, and you're like, why is this not in the canon? Uh, you know, why is this not something we talk about as one of the great yeah. films of the time? So I really yeah. like and... Shakespeare Barley as well. Uh, I fully agree with you there. Yeah. I, 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 it, like I said, it really, really annoys me that this is not an easily accessible movie. And yeah. I, I don't know why, because plenty of his movies have gotten in the Criterion collection. They're easy to find like on streaming on the Criterion channel or other like art based streaming yeah. services or what have you. So unless there's some weird fucking like rights issues where like multiple countries backed this movie and they're just like, no, you can't release it. No, you can't release it. Fuck you. Fuck you. Like, the movie itself became uh, like the the, the <laughs> territories between Northern and Southern Ireland. Uh, so I, I don't know, but I really hope someday somebody actually gets a hold of this movie because it's on. Um, it's so fucking good. My number seven has been alluded to already, uh, and it's one that Tom had to know was coming because I, I just love this movie so much. Um, I love it so much. I have a representation of it next to me. Uh, this is an audio medium, so nobody else will know this, but. Um, I mentioned seeing Cranes Are Flying at the Film Forum. This is another movie I saw at the Film Forum when it was in its run. Tom and I saw it together. Um, And it just blew me away. And I actually have next to me a giant foam board of the poster. I have no idea. I've had it for almost a decade now. I have no idea where I'm ever going to put it. It's the giant face of Jean-Louis Chretignon staring at his dying wife. Because the movie is Michael Haneke's Amour. That is my number seven. Um, I'm I'm a fan of Michael Haneke anyway. Um, uh, Das Weissband um, is number 18 on this list. He's won the Palme d'Or twice. Das Weissband or The White Ribbon and Amour. I know some people for uh, The White Ribbon. Um, but Haneke, just an incredible filmmaker. Amour blew me away because... 
Well, for a number of reasons. I think the performances are extraordinary in that movie. But I also think, you know, I talk a lot about, um, you know, what I don't like in movies. And what I don't like in movies is a lot of posing and a lot of, um, I guess, artificiality. Not like I'm a neorealist, but I, 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 I always think about a professor we had in college who, when we watched in class Goodbye Lenin, he talked about, he goes, you know, I see so many movies about guns and about hitmen. How many of you have ever held a gun? Every one of you has a mother. Why don't I see movies about mothers? You know, about kind of the, that sometimes it feels like it's a lot of bluster in what people talk about. And it's not coming from a sincere place. It's not coming from sincere emotions. Amour is incredible because while it's easy to dismiss Hanukkah as a detached filmmaker, you can't watch something like Funny Games and be like, well, of course, this comes from a deep and sincere place in his heart. Of course not. You know, even Cachet or White Ribbon, which are like his meditations on evil and guilt, come from a detached place, come from a bit of a scornful place. Amour is entirely sincere in its him grappling with the death of his parents and grappling with the idea of death in general, um, and not in a dramatic way, not in a way that allows somebody to detach. You know, I, I think that we, you know, and we talked about this, Tom and I were on a different podcast um, recently talking about horror and, and the problems with horror and how people maybe don't want to confront things that make them feel bad and how modern art consumption seems to be about, you know, when people talk about, oh, trigger warnings, it just feels like sometimes people are trying to avoid anything that makes them feel bad. Amour is the ultimate feel-bad movie, not because it's doing anything gothic or dark or like, oh, I'm going to show you children getting murdered. It's just the absolute reality of we all get old and we die. Our bodies stop working and we die. It is a thing that nobody wants to think about. It is a reality that we all face, Nobody ever wants to think about this. And this movie is graphic from the start of bodily functions failing, people struggling. It is a hard fucking movie to watch, which I think makes it such a daring thing to do because it's just, it is asking people to confront like one of the few things that we actually legitimately do not want to think about. It's, you know, in a way that is, there's a difference between, when you're talking about war movies, there's a difference between, like, the kind of American Vietnam movies that are full of music and montages and all that, and then something like Come and See, which is just like, no, fucking deal with this. This is sad, this is bad. Or, all, we talked about last season, All Quiet on the Western Front. There are some stylish yeah. shots, but All Quiet on the Western Front just hits you with, this is bad, and not... Oh man, but the government or no, the, the fucking this is bad. People die. I'm going on and on because I just it was it hit me so profoundly that uh, I get that the movie just is willing to tackle an actually uncomfortable idea instead of a needlessly provocative uncomfortable idea. You know, Tom and I talk about there are certain filmmakers we both don't really like. I'm not going to call them out by name, but like who are like, oh man, I'm doing transgressive shit. And you're like, no, you're not. You're doing things that are going to piss off uptight squares and that are going to get you applause from the people around you. Whereas more is so impressive to me because it's just, it's literally going, I'm going to make you confront the thing that nobody, nobody wants to think about. And while the Cannes Film Festival isn't always good at rewarding that, 
Um, sometimes they are. Uh, Nani Moretti's The Sun's Room is an uncomfortable topic they confront. This is... Um, yeah, I just... There is something about Amor. And the fact that it went on to get a Best Picture nomination, you know, that Haneke got a director nomination out of it, that it kind of was just such a titanic force that it was unignorable in its year because it just came from such a sincere place. Anyway, that's my my number seven, Amor. Um, yeah, my gone. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's not on my top ten. Um it's a movie I I get it, you know, I respect it. Uh I don't particularly care for it just because like it's like, all right, I get it. She's an old lady and she's sick and she's gonna die. Okay, cool. I I you know. And it's not about like avoiding the things that we all have to deal with. It's just like, yeah, I know I'm gonna have to deal with this. Like this isn't very like interesting to watch. It's just like okay she's sick and she's dying and she's, this guy's just watching. And I, 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 you know, I just found it very one note and I, I don't know, just, you know, why, you know, nobody's ever held a gun. Why are there so many movies about guns? Cause like, well, cause I go to the movies cause I, they're not real life. You know, sometimes it's okay to not just slowly point out all the little intricacies of a thing that happens in real life. You know, I think you got to be really talented and deaf that have something more than just, well, here it is. And, uh, I don't know. I, I I don't love the movie. I think it's fine, but I would um, be, I would be curious to, like we talked about, I mean, look again, tree of life with me being the perfect example. I would be curious to see where somebody like a Michael Haneke sits with you now. Because remember, you know, at point of order, like at the time we saw Amour, you were still a person who said David Lynch sucks. Like you well, had, I've also, had your uh, he, he, moment with him. So I'm curious. Well, Haneke's, it's still the only Haneke movie I've seen. Okay. And it hasn't put me off from wanting to see oh, his yeah. other stuff because I've heard about his other movies. I'm like, all right, that sounds interesting. You know, I want to see funny games. I want to see some of these other things. You would, without doubt, you would fuck with White Ribbon. White ribbon. But that's what I'm saying. Like, I don't even think this isn't the kind of movie where I'm immediately repelled from the director. It's just a movie where I'm like, okay, I get, I get what you're doing. I just don't particularly care. Hmm. And I don't know if that would, would change since then. Honestly, I might care even less because I've, I've seen people I've loved die since this movie's come out. So I don't, I don't know. It's just, it's a, so it, this isn't one of the two that I don't like on no. my list. Uh, I think it's I a am, good movie. I am fascinated. I know what one of them is and I'm fascinated what the other is. So, but I think, yeah, no, I, I, I don't know if this is necessarily a movie that everybody's going to like because it's so aggressively unappealing yeah, and just uh, bleak. But I think if people are willing to, give it a shot and are interested in those kinds of very slice of life movies. Uh, I think they would find something that they would be interested in. It's just, it just wasn't. For no, me. I, I don't fault it. I, I think my thing is, it's just kind of like it a little bit feels like, I hate to bring up a movie we brought up on a different podcast, but it does feel like, you know, when I hear people go like, no, but you got to see Terrifier too. It's one of the most disturbing movies. Yeah, I, knew, like, no, I, I knew. No, it isn't. I knew it. I knew it, it isn't. Meant, yeah. No, it isn't. You guys want to see disturbing. 
here's fucking disturbing. Like, come and see is fucking disturbing. Amore is fucking disturbing. Terrifier 2, like, those kind of things are a thing that we... There are, there's a level of distance in fiction and, and all that that we kind of use to, like, safely touch on these emotions. And I think that, like... You know, when a movie can transcend that, you know, um, and when it can tap into something even more real and raw, I think it's just an, an incredible um, act. But uh, all that to say, Tom, what is your number seven? Oh, that's right. That was your number seven. Uh, yeah. Okay, so my number seven it certainly is... wasn't yours. No, I just I I don't know. I just yeah. got lost for a second. Um, my number seven, a foreign language film. A movie that took the world by storm. A movie that made history at the Oscars. Interesting, yeah. My movie is Parasite. Mm -hmm. This movie is... When I saw it, I saw it at Fantastic Fest. It was the closing night movie. And it just lit the entire place on fire. And it's not like people there didn't know who Bong was, hadn't seen any of Bong's movies. I'd seen Bong's movies at that point. But it's just being able to see this guy time and time again tackle similar issues that have interested him his entire career in a new package that manages to surprise you. Like every 15 minutes, this movie just turns on a dime and you're like, wait, what am I watching? And it never feels contrived. It never loses track of anything. It all feels like a natural progression. The themes hold up. I mean, it's got just one of the biggest what the fuck moments i've seen in a movie in a long time and and especially because it's such a turn you wouldn't expect a movie to one win the palm with and to win the best picture at the oscars with especially for a south korean movie um i also i also just love that it's a movie that i don't want to say accidentally because it almost feels like it was trying to do this but kind of accidentally had a lot of rich people show their asses with when they were talking about this yeah. movie, where they were talking about, Oh, the people they were, they were doing so what that rich family did nothing wrong. Like, why are they being like that? And it's just like, ha ha ha. You're not getting it. You stupid fucks go by Twitter. Um, I think it's just so wild and insightful and beautiful and crazy and tragic and just, uh, you know, it's um, for a movie that quite literally does a movie about the haves and have nots about the people that are on top crushing the people that are on the bottom by literally having the rich people live on top of a hill and the poor people live at the bottom of the hill as they're getting completely submerged in shit water. Um, it manages to not be didactic, which is kind of like the amazing thing about the movie is that it's, in many ways, not subtle at all, but in so many ways, clearly people aren't getting... There's a lot of people that just don't get the point of the movie and how insightful Bong is about the state of the world and class and all of that. While, again, you know, never being... Never turning the rich people into ca cartoonishly evil characters and never turning the poor people into the noble heroes that just need a clean break. Like... That family, that, you know, that, that poor family, they're kind of shitheads. They are kind of dicks. I mean, the mom literally drop kicks a woman down a set of concrete stairs to, to protect her family's job. Pretty fucked up. The poor, the, the rich family, 
they do love each other. They're nice to each other. They, in their dickish ways, they're trying to be nice to this poor family, but they're still dicks because they're rich. They're just detached from reality. It's, it's just a fucking amazing movie. And I'm, it's, everybody needs to watch this movie. Go watch it now. Shut, shut this podcast off. Go watch it now. You fucking fools. Um, I, I agree with you a hundred percent. Uh, Parasite is very high for me. It's my number 14. Um, so it's just out of my top 10. And I should note, like for a very long while, it was 12. Like, I'll just, I'll just show my hand here. When Rome Open City was 10, like when I first started this list, when Rome Open City was 10, it was just, um, and it's, I don't think it's going to come up, but, uh, Jane Campion's The Piano was number 11. Parasite was number 12. And that was like a very strong kind of firewall of you got to be something real special to blow past these three. Yeah. Um, the only reason it's number 14, Tree of Life took 10 and another movie, I think, is not in my top 10, but I suspect is in Tom's, so I won't talk about it too much. I rewatched and came in at number 13. Um, I really like Parasite. I admire the hell out of Parasite. It's Oscar win was historic. I love everything for Parasite. Parasite, I think, is extra interesting to me. Uh, not just because of the history it made, but also because my relationship with Bong Joon-ho is a little complicated in terms of um, I love Memories of a Murder. I think Memories of a Murder is, ex- is exceptional. The host, I have never been a fan of the host. Like, that one has never really worked for me, despite loving kaiju movies. The host never really landed with me. I always found it a bit messy. I like Mother. Really like Snowpiercer. Okja, I'm fine with. But it always felt like I thought Memories of a Murder was a high watermark, and then I felt like he got less subtle as it went on. As much as I like Snowpiercer, like that's not a very subtle movie, you know. Okja is certainly not a subtle movie. So when I heard the Parasite won the Palm before I'd seen it, I was like, "Oh, that's interesting," and especially because I think it wins like the year after Shoplifters. And if you don't know anything about those movies and you just see the log line is an impoverished family tries to get by. I'm like, all right, I guess Khan is just on a run. You know, they're being <laughs> a little more because uh, Khan can do this some years. Like they give the palm mostly because of like the world outside, like Fahrenheit 9-11 wins one year, you know, and that was just like that was just the mood at the time or um, the year after because one year in 1968, the Khan Film Festival actually gets canceled because of the May 1968 student protest in France, which, by the way, don't make fun of those. You can't make fun of the May 1968 protests. Wes Anderson did it in the French Dispatch, and everybody got mad. So do not make fun of the student protests. Just warning. But, you know, I was wondering after... what the joke was. Okay, I, for- I forgot all about that. Yeah, yeah. remember the discourse? Um, but the year after the student protests, if the Malcolm McDowell movie about students, you know, uprising wins. So I guess with... When I first, and then uh, I ended up seeing it in a double feature by accident. My uh, partner, you know, we were early on dating at the time, and I think uh, Spirited Away was having a rep screening, and then Parasite was playing like shortly thereafter. So we saw both back to back. Real weird double feature, folks. Um, and I was blown away by Parasite. I really, truly, I mean, it's 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 Bong Joon Ho's best movie to me, without uh, without a doubt. And it really is, I think the most impressive thing about it to what Tom was saying is we watch a lot of movies. We know the patterns. We've seen a lot of things. And there are a lot of movies that we really like each year that we go, yeah, 
this does the thing we like really well. But it takes a lot to come away from a movie and go, that really did something different. Yeah. And I think Parasite does that. It is a movie that you see and just go, wow, okay. That caught me off guard in a lot of ways. So while it's not in my top 10, it's very close to it. I, I agree with Parasite there. All right, so your number six. So my number six is a movie that I'm pretty sure Tom has seen. He may not remember having seen um, <laughs> because we watched it in college, uh, a recurring gag of the show. Um, so to preface this, uh, in college, we took a class on the French New Wave. My familiarity with the French New Wave at the time was mostly Jean-Luc Godard and Jean-Pierre Melville. Um, you know, a lot of the movies that were kind of the, that represent our idea of the French New Wave, right? That when people think of the French New Wave, it's the girls, it's the cars, it's the zippy kind of yee-yee music, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and our professor said, like, well, we're going to watch a movie. Uh, and I think I had said to him, like, oh, I have a, there's a girl that I, I'm friendly with who wants to sit in on the class. And he's like, bring her in for this one. This is a hell of a one. And he put on Jacques Demy's The Umbrellas of Cheborg. And I was blown away. I was unfamiliar with Jacques Demy's work before that. And now he is, you know, second only to Godard as my favorite director of the French New Wave. And and obviously, you know, tied in with Anya Varda. They were married. The Umbrellas of Cheborg is a Technicolor musical um, that is a, a tragedy. Every line is sung, and it looks like a, you know, Vincente Minnelli, uh, Gene Kelly musical. And, of course, uh, Demi would also work with Gene Kelly on The Young Girls of Rochefort. But it looks like one of those musicals, but it's just day-to-day life. And it's a tragic story. Um you know, of love and loss. And obviously that, you know, the song that gets translated into English is I will wait for you. That recurring theme throughout the movie is heartbreaking. The ending shot is a heartbreaking. And I think that when we talk about the French new wave, a lot of people kind of just think about the pretension of it, right. Or the, um, the kind of obnoxiousness, you know, uh, thumb your nose at convention kind of thing. But to me, never does that, you know, he's fully sincere in what he does. Uh, what, Demi represents, Jacques Demi represents in the French Wave and Umbrella Sushiborg, I think perfectly represents is, well, why can't I use the language of a movie? Why can't I be aware that it's a movie and use that as a tool? Um, you know, Umbrella Sushiborg is one of the most beautiful to look at movies ever made, incredibly stirring, and uh, so many movies are indebted to it. You know, uh, I mean, you don't get a, a a La La Land or anything like that in recent years. They're all indebted to Umbrellas of Shaborg, but nothing has ever topped it. Um, it's maybe uh, the greatest movie musical of its era. Incredible transcendent stuff that I think is an absolute must-see and uh, because it just... It's one of those rare movies that I think kind of recontextualizes what you think movies can do. Uh, I love the Umbrellas of Shaborg. Uh, it Maybe is even you know if I on a given day it may even be higher for me. Just incredible stuff. So my number six, uh, Jacques Demy's The Umbrellas of Cheborg. Yeah, so I really can't speak on this because we saw it in college, and I can't really remember much about it. I don't. I honestly might not have been there for the first day they showed the class, the movie in class or whatever, or I just wasn't paying attention. 
Um, it is a movie I do want to get back to. I do want to get into uh, Demi. Uh, a lot of that does stem from the way Mike and other people talk about in Barlow's of Sherberg and uh, a lot of people, uh, a lot of podcasts and whatnot I was listening to around the time Once Upon a Time in Hollywood came out, talked about how that movie has a lot in its DNA uh, shared with uh, Model Shop by mm-hmm. Jacques Demi. Yeah. So that got me interested enough to be like, ooh, well, interesting. That's uh, I definitely would like to see more of the movies that helped fa- uh, formulate Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So can't really speak on it in any way, negative, positive, what have you, other than to say I do want to see it in my new uh, grown-up shell that's still also incredibly immature and useless to the world. Um, uh, so Young number Girls six, correct? I should also see too. That one I do want to see, too, because it's about a serial killer, correct? Well, that's that's the weird thing. There's a serial killer subplot that's very quietly in the movie. But it's actually just like, this small town sucks, and then Gene Kelly shows up. Hey, listen, I'm always down for Gene Kelly showing up. Oh, Young Girls of Rosewood, so good. Um, Yes, number six. Shaborg was my number six. Okay, so my number six. um, It's an interesting movie, because... Depending on the day and my mood, it might very well be my favorite movie from this filmmaker. But no matter what my mood is, one can't help but look at this movie and not see what a titanic, insane undertaking it was. Such an insane undertaking that it spawned a documentary about the making of it that may even be better than the movie itself. A movie where we watch the director try to wrangle this massive movie as he loses his fucking guinea mind. I am talking about Apocalypse Now, a movie that is so crazy. A movie that had such a wild history before it even got made, and then the movie itself is wilder than the history of, oh, hey, so John Milius wrote a movie about Vietnam, and, uh, yeah, sure, George Lucas is going to make it. Oh, he wants to film it in Vietnam, the cinema verite style, to get that sort of, you know, George Lucas, I'm a documentarian, but I make movies about aliens kind of thing. He keeps just always trying to do, but never did. It's like, oh, yeah, sure, that's crazy. Never gets made. Okay, what what are we going to do? Oh, give give Francis the, the script. He just had, you know, three movies basically win Best Picture and get, you know, the film world to explode all at once. Great, awesome. Let him do it. He's got the juice, and oh boy, did he use all of his juice to make this movie, and then some, to the point where he was a withered fucking husk when this movie ended. And and for a movie that works, you can feel the, the mania and insanity pouring through every single frame of this movie. It is, it is not the most accurate movie about Vietnam. And the experiences of being a soldier in Vietnam, no doubt about that. It's too fucking wild and silly and poetic to be accurate to the realities of fighting in Nam at the time. If you want that, watch Platoon. But no movie gets how Vietnam really just felt like this insane thing that tore the world apart and the seams of the world were falling apart around us and we're going further and further into the depths of hell and we don't even know why and fat Marlon Brando's there shit talking us in scat poetry and I don't know what he's doing and 
you know, Lawrence Fishburne's 15 years old. Why is he here? Martin, you know, Martin Sheen's having a heart attack on screen and he cuts himself on glass. And it's just, Dennis Hopper's just, just doing drugs on screen. Just being like, yeah, man, he's like God, man. He's like the God of Vietnam, man. And then it's just, it's a movie that shouldn't be as watchable as it is. It's a movie that shouldn't have been a pop cultural phenomenon the way it is. Because it is so arty. It is so crazy. But you could show this to anybody, the least film going person in the world. And they'd be like, wow, that was fucking crazy. I like that. And, you know, taking a fucking Joseph Conrad novel about going just riding the boat through Africa and then making it this acid trip through the gates of hell in Vietnam. It shouldn't work, man. It really shouldn't fucking work, but fucking hell does it work. And as much as the Godfather one and two are two of the greatest movies of all time, I honestly think I kind of like Francis when he's going a little off the fucking rails and just taking wild swings, which is why it's like, fuck, it's either this or like, Dracula or fucking like I just love when he's crazy and colorful and just doesn't give a fuck about being respectable I fucking love Apocalypse Now and yeah it's a fucking great movie man alright here's going to be where I show my behind a little bit um, we Please talk about this children we talk about on this podcast um, because you know when we're talking about our films in the National Film Registry and we're doing our usual episodes um, we always talk about, like, we're talking about why it's important, right? And that you don't necessarily have to love every movie, but you have to recognize why it matters. Um, a thing for me is that Apocalypse Now has always been a movie that I appreciate what it does. And I have nothing against it. But for whatever reason, no matter what cut I watch, it never gets over the finish line for me. It always just kind of, I appreciate what it's going for a lot more than I feel like it gets there. And that is in no way a criticism of the movie. That is a personal thing for me. Like, I fully recognize, you know, much in the same way, Tom, like we talk about for you, like we talked about it with like a Wizard of Oz, or we're going to talk about it with like a 2001 A Space Odyssey or something like that, where it's like, I get it. I fully get it. And there's shit I like in it. Never gets there for me. At that, at the same time, like I recognize its importance and the good stuff in it so much. It's number twenty-seven for me, so it's higher up than some other films like a Mash or a When Shakespeare Barley. But just I will, I will own the fact that people talk about Coppola and that kind of miracle run of four movies he has: Godfather, Conversation, Godfather Part Two, Apocalypse Now, and. For some people, that is a straight line. For other people, that is a an incline. For me, that four-movie stretch is, is kind of peaks and valleys, um, particularly with the, the conversation, which I've never, I, I've never been on board for. But Apocalypse Now, like I said, I like it. I, I, I respect a lot of it, and I enjoy I'm never mad when I watch it. But it has never been able to, like, push through that barrier of, like, transcendent for me personally with apocalypse now also the um, only cut worth watching is the theatrical cut I, i've seen both longer i've seen both re-edits he's done and yeah sure it's nice being on the plantation or whatever it's like cool great awesome doesn't need to be in the movie the shorter cut is like 
exactly what it needed to be. My number five, we're halfway there. Yeah. My number five is a movie that Tom has not seen. And is also a movie is also a movie that when he sees it, I am almost confident he's going to crack his top ten. Oh yeah. Uh, It is a movie that I had no expectations for when I first saw it. I knew that it had won the Palm d'Or. I also knew that it was one of the only movies to win the Palm d'Or and Best Picture, um, of which there are only three movies that hold that distinction right now. Um, and I also knew it as the shortest Best Picture winner ever because it's a tight 90 minutes. Um, but when I watched it, it's a perfect example of, you know, there's certain things with movies. We were just talking about Apocalypse Now, right? And while I'm not the biggest Apocalypse Now fan, like the one couple makes right after that, one from the heart, I love... And that's the kind of movie that's big. And I love a movie that just goes so big and so out there. I just, like, does something that only a movie could do. But there's another type of movie where the magic trick is that it has so little. Sometimes it's only got one set. Sometimes it's just two people talking. And if it can wrangle the same emotion out of me with that, I think that's incredible. I'm talking about Marty. It's a movie mm. by Delbert Mann, which is not like a well-known directorial name for people. Um, it uh, stars Ernest Borgnine. Not exactly what anybody, uh, you know, not exactly in the conversation today is like a master thespian. And the thing about Marty is, you know, I talked about like Parasite and how its log line is, you know, an impoverished family tries to get by. And you're like, that sounds not very interesting. And then you watch it and you realize it's about so much more, right? And it's doing so much more. Marty's logline is, Marty is a 34-year-old unmarried butcher. Uh, He can't find a girl. Finally, he meets a woman he likes, but she's unattractive. And his friends rag on her for wanting to be with an unattractive woman. That's the logline. And the amazing thing is, that's the movie. It's 90 minutes of that. There's no higher stakes. You know, we were talking about guns and movies. Where there's no guns. There's no fights. There's no anything other than just a guy getting clowned on by his friends for the woman he's attracted to and him deciding whether or not to leave this woman who he cares for because of the pressure of his mother and his friends. It's that for 90 minutes. And when you get to the end of it, you are in tears. It is an incredible human humanist movie that does so much with so little. You could make that movie for, you know, $5 and a can of Coke. Um, but it just fucking works like gangbusters. Incredible film. And um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's my number five and you've seen the ones that are below it. I rank it highly here. I rank it highly amongst the best picture winners. I think it's just, an incredible work of American filmmaking. So my number five is mine. Yeah. Yeah. I can't, I can't wait to see it. You know, ever since you saw it and talked about it, it's definitely been something I've been meaning to get to. And it sounds right up my alley. And I love, I love Ernest Borgnine. You know, he's, he's, he's just one of those guys when he shows up, you're just, you're just happy to see him. He's, he's, he's a great fella. What, what, what a dude. Um, all right. So my number five was a, Controversial pick at the time. And 
is my favorite movie from this filmmaker. It is Wild at Heart by David Lynch. Mm, wow. I love this movie with all of my <laughs> heart. Um, I think it's it's just such a beautifully demented movie. It's It gets to that thing that Natural Born Killers and True Romance got to a few years later, but I think with Lynch's eye and his view of the world and the performances he gets out of Cage and Dern and fucking Defoe showing up like at the end of that movie doing the, his weird little lizard devil thing. Um, and just the, the score and the, you know, just Cage rocking out the heavy metal music, but that's there. You know, it, it's a thing me and Mike have talked about all the time is that, you know, love stories aren't always the thing, aren't always the thing that always connect with me. But this is a movie where I truly believe these two and their love. And I love, I just love watching their journey. And I just, the, I just love, I just love the love that pours out of this movie. I just love their connection. And it's not a, like a true romance, natural born killers things where it's two maniacs falling in love or whatever. It's like, no, the two fucked up people that f- come together and their love gives them something to live for. And I mean, fuck that ending with him just singing to Laura Dern as the credits roll is just, it's fucking magic. And I love that movie so I just love it so much and it was con- like I said it was controversial at the time it pissed a lot of people off it kind of marked the change in Lynch's career of constantly making movies that just pissed everybody off after that <laughs> until people watch it a second time and go oh wait this is a masterpiece what the fuck were we mad about um yeah so quite the journey from a guy who in college thought Lynch fucking sucked to his move to being number five on Palme d'Or winners for me and it being my favorite movie he's ever made. It's, Oh God, this movie is just, it's just, it's just beautiful. I mean, I, there's only one more movie on this list that I would say is beautiful. And there's not many on my list that you would qualify as beautiful. (laughs) I am a psychotic boy who likes psychotic things. So I guess it fits that this psychotic movie would also be on my list, but it's also that 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 Lynch balancing act, man. It's deranged and psychotic, but really warm and beautiful and kind of – and it's his weird little, hi, I'm David Lynch, and I'm going to make a movie about crazy Nick Cage and his, and his crazy coat. And then Willem Dafoe shows up with fucked up teeth. And, you know, but, man, this movie – God, I gotta, I gotta watch it again soon, man. It's so fucking good. It's so fucking good. Now, Tommy, acknowledge up top, it's a controversial movie or it's a controversial choice for the Con Film Festival. Even though I looked at the lineup for the 1990 Con Film Festival, what else were you gonna give it to? White Hunter, Black Heart? Like, what were we gonna fucking do here? Um, <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> like, it's really like, I mean, like you have the Cyrano de Bergerac in there that I think is very good, but like, it's not. It's not like it has a lineup where you look at it and go like, oh, why the hell didn't you give it to blank? Um, you know, it's not like Fahrenheit 9-11 was a controversial choice. 
And part of that is old boy was also in that lineup. So people are like, why did you give it old? But there's no old boy in this lineup where you're like, well, that clearly. Anyway, look, I like David Lynch a lot. I've been a big David Lynch fan for a long time. Wild at Heart is not one of my favorites of his. It's number 45 in my rankings, um, which is not an indictment of it. I still really like Wild at Heart. I like what it has to say or what it's doing, rather. Um, I think part of my struggle with Wild at Heart in some ways, having, I, I think I saw Wild at Heart when I was, I was young when I saw Wild at Heart the first time. Part of my struggle with Wild at Heart, I guess, is it is a movie that is, it has a lot going on. But much like Mulholland Drive, it has a lot going on that is meant to stimulate the viewer and the viewer's imagination. But anytime somebody tries to talk about it, it's exhausting. You know, like when somebody tries to tell you what Mulholland Drive is, air quotes, about, it's always terrible. You know, uh, the cowboy shows up and says, I'll see you one more time if you do good, two more times if you do bad. Great. I love seeing that. Anytime somebody tells me what that means, I hate it. Um, and I do think part of my problem with Wild at Heart is the fact that, like, maybe part of it is I've been living with discourse around it so long. I remember, um, I'm going to mispronounce his name, but Slavo Zizek, the, the philosopher, has his Pervert's Guide to Cinema. And he spends so much time talking about, like, what Bobby Peru represents and what the head exploding represents, where I'm just like, I don't fucking... I like this movie a lot less when you explain it. Like, listening to Richard Kelly's Donnie Darko commentary, and you're like, well, I don't like this now. <laughs> it was cool when I got to make up my own explanation. Your explanation sucks. Um, anyway, I, it, I, I do not... I, I have nothing against where Tom places it, because it is very much a... If it works for somebody, and if it's somebody's favorite, more power to them. This is not a... I mean, Lynch is one of those filmmakers where, like, whatever works for you works for you, and I'm not going to blame anybody for not digging it. Um, it's just never been, it's never really clicked for me like some of his other ones do. Um, but that's just me on Wild at Heart. Now, my number four, I'm going to talk about my number four and then Tom's going to talk about his number four because we've been doing this thing where if, you know, Tom has it higher up than me, he'll wait till we get to his and Tom, you have this higher up than me. Um, my number four is Pulp Fiction. Um, <laughs> So just sit this one out. Uh, yeah. <laughs> my number four is Pulp Fiction, which is very hard to put at number four. But, like, you know, we're talking about, like, when you get to this point, you've got canonical classics, right? Yeah. There are other movies that I'm going to put above Pulp Fiction that, like, arguably could be above Pulp Fiction. And none of this is a criticism of Pulp Fiction. I was just talking about Wild at Heart and being over-discoursed. Pulp Fiction is certainly over-discoursed. It is certainly, like, the ultimate film bro movie, but that doesn't take away from it at all. If Pulp Fiction is can be dinged for anything, it's nothing to do with the movie itself, and it's all to do with the many, many bad imitators that came after, like um, Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead, or Destiny Turns on the Radio, or, I don't know, the million other bad Pulp Fiction knockoffs, right? Um, things to do in Denver when you're dead. Yeah. That's, that's like those these, these bad Pulp Fiction knockoffs. Um, but that's like, I'm not going to knock Spielberg for the fact that like other half-assed Amblin films come out after that. Pulp Fiction is, is a, it's a remarkable film to watch as a young person. You know, I saw it when I was, was young and it's like, it's a lot of people's gateway drug to cinema 
right? Like, I feel like Tim Burton movies and Quentin Tarantino movies are baby's first auteur movies where, like, they are very, very stylized from an early, you know, it's easy for anybody to recognize a Quentin Tarantino movie or a Tim Burton movie or a Wes Anderson movie, I guess, too. Like, their style is very obvious and their style is very distinct. And Quentin Tarantino has the thing where he is both respected and loved by critics who find something very deep and engaging in his work, and he is also loved by idiots, right? Like, his movies also play to the lowest common denominator. And I think that sometimes he can get written off for that. But I think the difference is when I evoke like Tim Burton, with Tim Burton as an auteur, as a baby's first auteur, there's a point of diminishing returns on Tim Burton. And with Quentin Tarantino, I don't find that. Like, I don't find that like as I get older, I outgrow Pulp Fiction. I don't outgrow Pulp Fiction. I don't outgrow Reservoir Dogs. Um, and even though there are films he's made after Pulp Fiction like Hateful Eight, like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, that I think have much more emotional depth. Pulp Fiction is just such a perfect work. It's just such a, like, all the cylinders are firing, all the stars aligned. It's just a unique work. Um, there's never really been anything quite like it before or since. It's lightning in a bottle. It's a It's a part of the cinematic language now, and rightfully so. And it's always entertaining to watch. It's always just, you know, it's it's pure cinema. In, in, to put it succinctly, it is pure cinema. Um, so, yes, Pulp Fiction, my number four. Yeah, Tom, we'll what's get your to number that four? A little bit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we'll get to that yeah. a little bit. Uh, my number four is the other movie I would put, I said on my list is uh, described as beautiful. It is a movie that when I first saw it, I immediately just went, yep, that is right up my fucking alley it is oh it's so fucking i mean my number four is paris texas and it is just so wonderfully well observed it is so beautiful and so sad and just such ah oh, I, like it's just one of those movies, man, where I don't even really know how to talk about it, other than to just say it's so beautiful and so good. And that that last bit with him talking to Natasha Kinski through the window, it's just a fucking, it's just masterful. And for someone, like I said, doesn't, you know, this isn't like the typical love story or whatever, but it is a love story, a broken love story. It's about a broken man. And the mistakes he's made, and all of that, and as as someone who himself considers himself a broken boy who's fucked up love in his life and is gonna feels like he's gonna be a, a lonely boy wandering the, the the deserts of Texas, just 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 scruffy and disoriented, and being like, what, what, where am I, huh? Um. You know, I, I I don't foresee a world where this knocks, where any other Wim, Wim Vendors movie knocks this off the top of my list of Wim Vendors movies. I, I, I This is the movie that started my love affair with the works of, the written works of Sam Shepard. I mean, Henry Dean Stanton is just un, 
unbelievable in this movie. I mean, this he's a guy who is he's always one of those guys who just shows up in movies and knocks it out of the park and never really gets like leading roles and he gets a leading role in this and he's so good. He's so good and so sad and just so broken but so human. That's the thing, man. This movie's so fucking human. And God, do I am I glad this movie didn't come out during the era of the discourse because <laughs> Oh, this is such a toxic guy. He such a, it's such a toxic relationship. Why would I feel bad about this? And it's like, hey, go, go fuck yourselves. Um, I, I, I don't know. I, like I said, it's hard for me to like really get into this movie. It's just so, it's just perfect to me. It's so fucking good. I, I just, I love it so much. Um, Paris, Texas, I alluded to before, is my number 13. It wasn't that yeah. high for me originally. I saw it in college when uh, I took a, a new German cinema course and I was introduced to Vim Vendors actually through Kings of the Road. I think most people like see Vim Vendors for the first time either because of Paris, Texas or Wings of Desire, but we watched Kings of the Road, so I was enamored with. Saw Wings of Desire, which remains my favorite Vim Vendors movie. And I saw Paris, Texas. And I, I liked it when I saw it when I was younger. But... I had a feeling it was going to come up in this conversation, so I revisited it, and it shot up a lot for me. And part of that, of course, is because One from the Heart also uses Natasha Kinski in a similar role. But, but I do think that Paris, Texas is the answer to a lot of the problems I have with when I talk about tough guy movies or anything like that. Like, Tom is right in describing Harry Dean Stanton as a broken man in this movie. And he is. But he actually is, as opposed to kind of like a sanitized, Hollywoodized, broken man. You know, like, I guess um, too many movies that I, I find exhausting are movies that I feel like feed into people's own uh, self-loathing, you know, and certain guys where it's like, you know, certain directors who make movies about a guy who's like, oh, man. I'm so mad all the time. And sometimes I get sad that I get so mad. And you're supposed to like, and guys watch it and kind of go like, yeah, that's like me. And they treat it like it's fucking Shane saying, you know, a man's got to do what a man's got to do. What I love about Paris, Texas, and I'm going to talk about it with another movie on this list too, but what I love about Paris, Texas is Harry Dean Stanton is a broken man. And also there is nothing cool about Harry Dean Stanton. He doesn't know how to emotionally connect with people, and there's nothing aspirational about that, right? Like, he's not just saying, oh, I have a hard time, and oh, I'm such a bad guy, and excusing that. And nobody comes away from Paris, Texas, being like, I want to be more like Harry Dean Stanton. You don't. You absolutely don't. And the ending, when he's talking to her through the glass, like Tom talked about, and he has that monologue, there was a boy, there was a girl. And he's describing their relationship and how it fell apart. He's not asking for sympathy, nor is he making it sound good or normalized. It is rather just a man actually acknowledging his faults and acknowledging them in a way that suggests that he himself knows they're bad, knows it was bad, and wouldn't do it again while also recognizing that is not enough to earn forgiveness. It is an, a film that actually grapples with the way that we hurt each other and the way that we treat other people and the way that we seek forgiveness 
without whittling it down to some oversimplistic thing or whittling it down to nihilism. You know, there is an actual heart to this film. So while it isn't my top 10, it was very close to it. And uh, yeah, I also, I respect the hell out of Paris, Texas. And, you know, again, just such a me movie. Like Mm, it, Mike couldn't be surprised that it was up this high for me in particular. Well, from a very you movie to a very me movie in uh, taste and vibe. Um, my number three is it's my number three of, you know, all Palm d'Or winners. And yet it's not even my favorite film by this director. Um, but it's very close to my favorite. Um, I, I love this film so much. I love the energy of this film so much. I actually have sitting right next to me, a framed poster for the film. So a reveal before I say it for the boys, on the camera that's right yeah my number three film federico fellini's la dolce vita um i love it for a number of reasons i mean part of it is um you know i love italian cinema but i have never been the biggest neorealist guy to some degree i am like um a film that i rank pretty highly here is like tree of wooden clogs um or any of those but i i just love when you watch fellini's career and he starts as a bit of like he's in that neorealist sandbox because you have to be, and that is the only thing you're allowed to do, and you're only allowed to show the misery of poverty and the quiet dignity of the poor. And blah, blah blah blah. And slowly but surely, you watch his Fellini just goes, "I don't want to do that." Like he finds ways to sneak that in, like um, in Knights of Cabiria when he's like, "Well, yeah, sure, it's about a poor prostitute, but she's in a rich guy's house." And La Dolce Vita just flies in the face of all of that, of every bit of that. It is entirely about nice clothes and fancy cars and and the vapidity of all of this. And he is really just playing around in high society. And the film makes you observe that high society and the film gives you that energy. But it is never so pointed in its satire. It's never a white lotus. It's never even a, a film we brought up before, a parasite where... It is spelling out or like kind of laying out for you like, oh, these people are bad. It just is a display of decadence and a display of the emptiness of that decadence. And, you know, our main character uh, being somebody who gets to roam around in this world and obviously photograph it as a paparazzo, but he never fully gets to be a part of it. But what would fully getting to be a part of it even be? because everybody who is in this world seems to be a little bit yearning to get out of it. Um, I think one of the things about La Dolce Vita that I love so much too is despite my rambling, it is a movie that's kind of hard to put into words. Um, you know, uh, you know, it's kind of a no answers, just vibes kind of movie in some senses. Like it's much more enjoyable to watch than to talk about. But I think La Dolce Vita is just one of those movies that it, we talk about movies that redefine cinema. La Dolce Vita absolutely redefined cinema in general it it solidified federico fellini as one of the greatest and most unique filmmakers it redefined what movies can be and what they can feel like because it was not hollywood glamour but it was still glamorous um i think of that soundtrack constantly i think of that so many images from that movie constantly just a an absolute masterpiece of filmmaking so my number three is la dolce vita yeah la dolce vita is a good movie i like it uh, I don't love it as much as Mike. Clearly, it's not on my top ten. Um, 
I agree with, you know, everything said. Uh, I really just think, it, honestly, the thing that holds me back from it is that I just think it's way too long. That's honestly, like, just the biggest thing, in, in my opinion, is I think it's too long. Uh, I could have made its point a little, a little, with a little more uh, pep in its step. But, uh, you know, it's a good movie. I think people, anybody that hasn't seen it will like it. It's not uh, a weird, like, obnoxious, obtuse fucking movie. Like, it's, you're going to have fun watching it. It's a good time. It's a good movie. And um, maybe not the best movie to start your Fellini uh, binge off on because, again, it is so long. But really good movie. Uh, not surprised Mike has has had it on this list. Also, can we up. agree maybe one of the sexiest casts ever compiled in a film? I mean, wouldn't argue there. It's pretty pretty good in terms of sex appeal. Um, I mean, even just Marcello so alone, really. I mean, yeah, obviously. Um so my number three, we're going to be talking yet again about all that jazz. <laughs> I mean, again, not a surprise for Mike. Mike knows me. He knows the kind of things I'm into. And he knows I'm in, into movies about broken, fucked up men acknowledging how broken and fucked up they are while trying to just make it through the next day. In this guy's case, make it through the next day so he can make his art. The art that he knows is great because he is great and everything he does is great. And if he could just just find the right edit to make this fucking movie about a stand-up comic work, he can make the movie great. He's trying to make his next big musical epic and he just needs to do it and make it great. Arr! And he's popping all these pills and he's cheating on everybody. He's a bad dad. He's a fucking maniac. And it's so good. It's so good. And it's like Mike said about Paris, Texas. It's not a movie that you ever walk away from and you want to be, for all intents and purposes, Bob Fosse. Yeah. You don't want to be this guy. You look at this guy and go, I, I recognize him. I see parts of him in me. I don't want to be this guy. This is not sexy at all. This guy is an absolute fucking freak. But it's done in such a fucking way that it's not unwatchable it's not sad it's i mean it's not it's not like a funeral dirge even though it literally ends in a funeral dirge <laughs> it is i mean it is bob fossey's masterpiece and you know it feels almost disingenuous to say because he made what five movies you know yeah right made yeah. sweet charity cabaret cabaret uh, lenny, lenny this and Stardy. and um I think, like, you know, by leaps and fucking bounds, this is, like, easily his best movie. And it makes sense for a man who is such a fucking egomaniac as him for his best movie to be about him. Uh, um, but it works. And it's like Mike says, you know, there's this long history of movies like this about a director making a movie about themselves, basically. And making this semi-autobiographical, semi-autocritique you know, auto -critique about themselves that manages to get into a more universal just storytelling space about the delusions we tell ourselves, our desire to make a mark, our flaws, our need, our flaws overtaking our good intentions, all sorts of crazy shit that we all struggle with on a day-to-day -day basis. It's, but done in such a flamboyant package and Fucking hell is this Roy Scheider's best performance. I mean, gee, 
this H Christ. And that's, and that's, that's actually not saying nothing. Like this guy had a fucking run in the seventies of just unbelievable movies, unbelievable performances. And to just end the eighties off with this goddamn movie. I mean, fucking Christ. You mean it's end just, the 70s? Well, yeah, end the 70s, excuse me. To end the 70s, to go into the 80s, yeah. you know, where Roy Scheider would basically never recover from the highs of the 70s again. I mean, this movie's a masterpiece. It's just, it's an unrelenting masterpiece that I love my movies about broken men because I see myself in them. But it's very honest. It's very human. It's never. It doesn't promote this life. It doesn't promote this way. It's just oh, so fucking good. And I'm glad this one actually has a criterion because this movie needs to be like available for everybody to see. It's so good. So good. Number three. Let's go, baby. Let's go. There's a world where we have the same number two. I think we might. I I, th- I think like, we might. My my number two is either your number two or your number one, um, and it's going with your conversation about movies about broken men. It's not. It, this yeah, is, it's. Yeah. This is the epitome of the movie about broken men. Yeah. Um, it's Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver. Yeah, that's um, my number two. It is a. I mean, re- a true. Like, I hate to say this, but like, and be so dismissive, but like, it's a masterpiece. It's it is an unimpeachable masterpiece. Yeah. Um, when I was talking about like Harry Dean Stanton in Paris, Texas, as a broken man. Um, Travis Bickle, to me, even though maybe some people do find him aspirational, the really fucked up ones, um, he's not. There's nothing cool about him. He is not, in fact, a tough guy in any way. He's just mentally ill. His superpower (laughs) is he's mentally ill. Um, He just wants to start fights. And he wants to start fights with no one in particular. He wants to assassinate politicians just because he's mad. He wants to kill people just because he's mad. The entire thing of Taxi Driver and Travis Bickle is the reality of what so many of these, you know, air quotes, tough guys are, which is, you know, I think one of the things that got lost in a show like Breaking Bad, uh, and there's a reason I bring this up, is that because of what we find out about Walter White and his relationship to the people he worked in the company with and all that, by the end of that show, you're supposed to see him as pathetic. But he has been so fucking cool for so much of that show, for so many people, that you can't see him as pathetic. The same way that, like, so many people miss the point of Scarface. Because even though he dies dead in a pool with everything ruined around him, he seems cool for the first part of the movie. Travis Bickle is pathetic. Yeah, For the whole movie, he's pathetic. And I think that that is especially shown by the fact that you give us that relationship of him and 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 um oh my god i'm forgetting her name sybil shepherd um where he takes her to like the porno theater and he's like what no lots of people going to see this movie lots of people go to see the movie what are you talking about he's pathetic he's sad and pathetic and like all these people i talk about all the time who go you know that'd be me i'd be walter white no you wouldn't like you you wouldn't you know why i know you wouldn't uh, you know, guy in his 50s on Long Island, it's because the doctor told you a couple more cheeseburgers and you'll die and you just kept eating cheeseburgers and smoking cigarettes. Like, if you got a death sentence from the doctor, you would just keep being sad about it. At most, you would be a Travis Bickle. Um, a guy who's like, 
this is it. I'm going to go out on top with a gun. And then most people just go, what the fuck was that about? Um, that's the thing about Travis Pickle that's so compelling is that, is that it is just a, the movie is start to finish a portrait of loneliness, a portrait of instability and a portrait of a pathetic little man. Um, you know, I mean, I think that in the seventies when we were reeling with so many assassinations done by so many unwell people, um, you know, it's reflected in taxi driver. It's reflected in Nashville. Um, that they were very quick to kind of just point to, like, these guys are fucked up. Like, these are just fucked up, sad, lonely bastards, and there's no rhyme or reason to it. And in the decades since we tried to ascribe meaning to it, in much the same way that, like, in the opposite direction, a movie that won the Palme d'Or years later, Gus Van Zandt's Elephant, probably felt profound when it came out in 2003, when it's like, yeah, look at these bullied, lonely kids that shoot up a school. And now we watch Elephant and it's like, holy shit, this is such, this is so empty. And this is so like trying to pop psychology, something that we know is a different epidemic in this country. I think that Taxi Driver correctly diagnoses what the epidemic was in this country then and kind of now. Um, and that's to say nothing of an incredible performance by Jodie Foster. Um, and... I think the perfect blend of Scorsese and Schrader because it is maybe the perfect Paul Schrader script that Scorsese actually saves him from his worst demons on, you know, um, it's just a, it's a perfect movie and it is maybe it is, it is not just a, a great movie. It's in the pantheon of like truly great American movies that capture what this country is. So Taxi Driver is my number two. Um, it's my number two. Yeah. So I agree with everything Mike said. It's just unbelievable. Real peek into the mind of the diseased. Um, also, I feel like a thing that really a lot of people don't talk about when they talk about this movie is um, I feel like it was the first, if not the first, maybe one of the first and probably the biggest to do it this early was to really focus on a Vietnam vet and kind of show like, look what this war did to this. Like, look what, look what's coming back from this war. Like this war has completely broken this man's mind. He doesn't know how to be a human being anymore. And it's not like about that. It's like a throwaway line when he's applying for a job at the beginning. Oh yeah. You were a Marine. Yeah. I served in Nam, blah, blah, blah. When Joe Spinell, the fucking maniac, you know, from maniac is like hiring him for the job. It's just this throwaway line. It's like, Oh, he served in Vietnam. And that's like, Honestly, everything you need to know. It's like, oh, okay, this guy's not well. And then you keep seeing, oh, he's really not well. Oh, he's real. He's, he doesn't know how to be a human being anymore because of what this thing did to him. And, uh, yeah, I mean, this is definitely Marty and Schrader's best, uh, team up together, like by far. And I, uh, feel- uh, no, no, I wouldn't say that. Uh, Raging Bull, but, um, to your this point, is though, you're saying, the yeah. most Schraderism. This is the most Schradery. To what you were saying about thing. things that don't get talked about enough, the social satire of this also, you know, the fact that it also addresses how we as a society don't know how to work outside of binaries. Yeah. You know, this is something we talk about a lot now, but like trying to divide things into, well, there are good people and there are bad people. And also, if you do good, you must be a good person. If you do bad, you must be a bad person. The fact that it ends with the newspaper writing up what a great guy Travis Bickle was for rescuing this young girl 
and how wonderful and what a good person he is when he just wanted to kill people. Like, yeah. he just goes in and blows these people away because he had an unhealthy obsession with a girl and basically, you know, puts his little finger gun to his head covered in blood, and we call him a hero for that, which feeds into that Vietnam vet- metaphor you're describing where, you know, we send someone to go be a killer and then we celebrate them for it and then we wonder how they're so messed up. And, um, you know, the Vietnam right- thing of... Yeah, and the Vietnam thing of just we turned him into a killing machine. He comes back. He doesn't know what to do. So what's the only thing he knows how to do? Kill. He thinks killing Palantine is going to get back at that bitch who, you know, dumped him. And then it's like, well, that's not going to work. So let me kill the pimp that's, you know, hurting this little girl that I like for some fucking reason. And it's, you know, the quote unquote right thing to do. So it's just, you know, it's. Yeah, like, it's just every little thing in that movie is just Marty and Schrader and De Niro and Jody and Keitel and Sybil and Albert Brooks is just great in his little bits of just kind of, you know, like, look at this little guy. Like, who, like, he's just a little dick. Like, who is this guy? Like, this guy? Like, who cares? Um, it's just perfect. It is, it is perfect. And it's fucking crazy that a movie this perfect even exists. And... Fuck, such a good movie. All right, so that was both our number two. So what's Mm -hmm. your number one? Well, that's what's interesting is uh, you notice I've mentioned a lot of the canonical classics and I've also mentioned a lot of movies you know I love. So you've heard a bunch of these titles, Tom. You know what I've said already. I'm curious. What do you think is my number one? What hasn't been mentioned yet? I don't know. So my number one is think I have a greater... Uh, uh, memory of what's uh, been won, what won the Palm Door. Yeah. My number one is a movie, I mean, I adore it. Um, I think if you talk to most people, they're not putting it in the same conversation as Taxi Driver or Pulp Fiction or even La Dolce Vita. But they should. Um, or I'll say this, if you talk to Americans and modern day cinephiles, they don't talk about it. Um, even though it's from a director who's considered canonical. Kyle, you're mouthing like you know it, did you just say? You don't. No, maybe. No, I don't. don't? I cannot imagine this is what you're thinking of. I would love if it was. Thank God. Okay, great. I was like, is he doing what I think he's doing? No. All right. No, no. Um, But it is, you know, I think if you talk to non-Americans, particularly the British, uh, they know this film a lot better. It's from a a well-known director, but it's a director best known for epics. And we were just talking about the disparity, how I love movies that either go so big or do yeah. so much with so little. If you know David Lean, you know David Lean for Bridge on the River Kwai, or Passage to India, or Dr. Zhivago, or a movie that we are going to talk about in our upcoming season, Lawrence of Arabia. But he also made an 83-minute, sorry, 86-minute, tiny little romance movie that is one of the most incredible films despite being so small. And I think about it because I remember when I first heard about Brief Encounter, I heard it described as England's Casablanca. And I thought about how, I remember reading something that suggested like, you know, uh, England, France, and America each have their immortal love story. France has Children of Paradise. Um, England has Brief Encounter. America has Casablanca. And of course, France would have a love story uh, about a mime falling in love with a woman and ending in tragedy and walking into a parade and blah, 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 blah. And America would have an immortal love story about 
fighting back against the Nazis and, you know, Rick and, and Casablanca and blah, blah, blah. And Brief Encounter is just, it's a woman in a dull marriage. She just doesn't feel appreciated. And she meets a man at a train station. And they fall for each other. And it's not a physical affair, per se. It's an affair of the heart. They go to movies. They talk to one another. And what they're really both drawn to is the feeling of being appreciated. Not as a spouse, not as a worker, but just as a person and being seen. And and also getting to hide things of themselves, which is such the charm of early romance, right? That when you've been in a relationship for a long time, when you find somebody who you can truly be vulnerable with, you do start to miss the mystery, you know? Um, and that's what she misses. Brief Encounter, for the first 95% of it, is a really engaging movie, a small movie, and a movie of subtlety, but a really engaging movie. Why it's the greatest Palme d'Or winner for me and why it is in contention to me for the greatest love story of all time. I think, you know, the only movie I put above it is maybe City Lights. Um, why Brief Encounter moves me so much is the ending. And I'm not going to spoil the ending. I'm going to give three lines of dialogue without saying who they're by or any context that will break your heart in half. You've been a long way away. Yes. Thank you for coming back to me. You've mentioned this before. I can't remember which episode, but I remember this as an intro before. It shatters me because it changes your entire perspective on the movie. It changes your entire perspective on, to me, on relationships in general. A weird comparison I think I make sometimes to it is, is nobody would put these two movies together, but it almost reminds me of Eyes Wide Shut. In the sense that, you know, people think that movie's about weird sex cults when it's really just about, like, the strange things that go on when you've been in a relationship for a long time and how you grapple with jealousy and feeling unwanted. That's what Brief Encounter is about. It's about somebody finding a part of themselves again and about understanding. And I think that it captures that in under 90 minutes. It captures it better, more succinctly and more subtly than any movie ever has. And that, to me, makes it so much more true than any of the hyperbolic romance films we get anywhere else. So that's why, to me, Brief Encounter is my number one. Uh, it's the greatest film to win the Palme d'Or, even though it won it in one of those weird batch years. Um, it just is... A, it's it's It pulls off a magic trick that no movie should under those constraints. It's incredible. Yeah, listen, I love Brief Encounter. Um Honestly, the only reason it's not on this list is because it's in one of those weird batches, and I just said, I'm not going to, just a weird little ground rule I set for myself. I'm like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to put one of the movies from in there in it, even though Brief Encounter is amazing. It definitely would have knocked Barton Fink off the list. I don't know where it would have fallen. It might have been in my top five, definitely in the top 10 though. Uh, Brief Encounter is amazing. David Lean is amazing. It never ceases to amaze me that this guy went from movies like this and his fucking Dickens adaptations to being like the epic guy, the guy that made the biggest fucking movies ever made. So, um, but yeah, this brief account is unbelievable. 
Everybody should go fucking watch it. It's a beautiful, sad, just tragic little, ugh, just so fucking good. I mean, yeah. Tom Steel, seal of approval. So. Hold on, hold on. I asked you to what? guess my number one pick. I think it's only fair that I guess your number one pick. Uh, okay, I mean, what's not, my number yes, one pick? It's pretty obvious. It's Ruben Oslin's The Square. Obviously. Yeah. Uh-huh. You love uh, nothing, nothing you love more than Ruben Oslin's The Square. One of the two movies I do not like on this fucking list. I am fuck. I knew that one. I'm fascinated what the other one is. Well, we'll get into it in a sec, but obviously oh, my number okay. one. I mean, I don't know. We'll talk about it at some point, okay. be it on this episode or just in text messages. But my number one, because I said it's higher up before, it's Pulp Fiction. There's no other real estate, so it has to be number one. Um, uh, everything Mike said is true. Um, it's a mo- I literally have a tattoo of Pulp Fiction on me. Like It's a movie that is quite literally a part of my being at this point. I love it so much. Um I don't know, like, it's it's definitely Quentin's best movie, I think, still. I think it's still his best movie. Uh, I may, it, I, he's made some that I might say are, I like as favorites more. You know, I definitely watch Once Upon a Time in Hollywood a lot more. I love what he did with The Hateful Eight. And I really do love what he did with Django Unchained. The way he mixes the deep themes with his populist way of making movies. You know, it's, they're... Fun to watch, but really deep. Um, but Pulp Fiction is just this lightning in a bottle fucking mo- moment. It is the movie that was the shot across the bow that said, I am here. You have to reckon with me now. And I'm not going away. Unlike everybody else in the fucking 90s indie scene other than Soderbergh. And even Soderbergh, I don't think, has the same cachet that Quentin has 30 years later. It's just a perfect movie about movies, about stories, but also, you know, and it's literally the title is Pulp Fiction. He's telling these multiple stories that are just pulp stories. We've seen, we've read and watched movies about these stories before. The two hitmen going on a job gone wrong. The palooka who doesn't take the dive and has to run from the the gangsters. You know, the love lawn, the lovesick lovers who can't be together. You know, it's just... But just in the way he's able to do it, the magic of how everything intersects and the way the just the way the characters are written. You've never seen characters like them. You've never heard people talk like them. You've it's just you know, Mike said it before, it's a lot of movie that a lot of people was their gateway into movies. This was this was the movie that was like I'd I'd loved movies before, but this was the one where I was like, Oh wait, you have like there's somebody that writes these things. Like somebody has to do this this doesn't just happen and i'm gonna love this movie the 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 rest of time the rest of my life god hope it's short one but uh, the rest of my life it's in my top five it just in movies in general i love this fucking movie and truly insane that it won the palm door and i'm so happy it did so it is my number one pulp fiction now, before we wrap up with Tom uh, trying to guess which films uh, are also in the registry that won the Palm Door, Kyle, uh, I know we kind of threw this one at you, but do you have any thoughts on the subject of the Palm Door? Any movies that won that you like? 
any movies that we talked about during this conversation that you haven't seen that you're intrigued by? Any thoughts you want to lay about the uh, Palm Door, the Cannes Film Festival before we wind this bad boy down? Um, I thought like the Palm Door was some sort of lotion when you mentioned it. So that's how little understanding I knew about it going in. Um, but after just kind of looking at the list, I was sort of surprised in how many I had seen. Um, I mean, obviously, most recently, uh, I've seen Titan, um, uh, Parasite, as we've talked about, probably my favorite on this list. Um, I'm trying to see, oh, obviously Fahrenheit 9-11. I don't believe I've actually seen The Pianist. Um, Listen, if you're going to watch one piano playing Palm d'Or winner, I would recommend The Piano rather than The Pianist, but nothing against The Pianist. Just Is it not The Piano? Oh, oh, are there two? Well, oh, there are yeah. two? Oh, the there pianist, are two. I, the I thought pianist, I was sitting here being like, wait, did I say it wrong? Like, no, The Pianist is the Roman Polanski film about um about Vladislav Spielman that got um, Adrian Brody the Oscar. Uh, the Piano is Jane Campion's film, which made her the first woman to ever win the Palme d'Or. And now, since then, there's been one other. Doing great, Can. Oh, I but guess Lupin I've, I guess I've gets two. I guess I've also seen Dumbo as well. That's probably yeah. the oldest movie on this yeah. on this list that I've seen. So that's why there was a part of me that's like, there's no way that you're going to go here and make a freaking pitch for Dumbo as your number Dumbo's, one. Dumbo's on my list, but it's not. It's. I mean, I forget where the fuck is Dumbo on my on my list um i mean i think it's cool that it got the palm even though it was during that split year uh dumbo is 23 for me dumbo's wow what weird company dumbo is sandwiched between blue is the warmest color and the tin drum what a triple feature um two movies with very controversial sex scenes Oh, I've obviously seen Pulp Fiction as well, because if I said I didn't, then Tom would fucking kill me. So You know what I'm surprised saying. by? Tom, I, I, had said, I thought Wages of Fear was showing up for you. I haven't seen it. Really? Oh. It's been one I've been meaning to see since I saw a Sorcerer, but I just haven't gotten around no. to seeing Wages of Fear yet. But I know, right, I know before, it'll be great. Before we have you guess the movies in the registry, and we don't have to keep this in for anybody else. In fact, Kyle, if you're up for it, Beep it out when he says it so that we leave the audience's dispense. Tom, what is the other Palme d'Or winner that you don't like? And Kyle, get ready to beep it for the audience. I want to keep him in suspense. Oh, uh, oh, oh, fuck you. Oh, well. I can't stand I can't stand I that fucking movie well. that just, like, he's no, just no, one of those guys. Say it, don't say anymore. I want it to just beep the title and the director and have no, everybody be going, this what is all, he got no. against Costa Gavras' uh, This is all... This is all for me now. I'm letting him. I'm like, I hear, I get you. You know, I, you know, I'm, a, I'm self aware enough. I appreciate his films. You know, you know what movie I saw for this? I'll, no, I mean, you know, I can't get into this on mic. I have a movie I want to rant about, but I'm not going to do it now. We've been keeping people too long. Um, all right. So, Tom, normally at the yeah. end of a regular episode of You're Missing Out, uh, we have you uh, guess what a film was nominated for. This time, I should point out we talked about a bunch of films. That are that won the Palme d'Or, and as I acknowledged, you know, three movies that won the Palme d'Or also won Best Picture: uh, The Lost Weekend, Marty, and now Parasite. But more interestingly, we just did our top ten. Did you know ten movies that have won the Palme d'Or are also in the National Film Registry? So now we're going to play a game to wrap this up. How many can you guess of the ten films that are in the National Film Registry? And remember. This is a game where you have to try instead of just going two and then going, 
I don't know, whatever. I don't remember what I had for dinner. Just take a shot. I want to see, we're going to put you in the test, how many can you name that won the Palme d'Or and also are in the National Film Registry? Uh, Pulp Fiction, Taxi Driver, mm-hmm. um, All That Jazz, mm-hmm. uh, Apocalypse Now. Yep. Um, fuck, is Marty in there? Correct. Um, I'll give you some hints if you feel like you're tapped out. I want to see if I can get you there. He's you know? he's halfway there, so let's yeah. see. Uh, um, uh, Dumbo. Correct. Okay. I forgot. I forgot you said Dumbo. Um. Oh my God. Um, is Mash in there? Yes. Uh boy. You um, are missing three. three. Only three. You're at a seventy percent right now. Third man. Nope. No, third man's not in there. Well, that's English. Oh shit, that's right. Yeah. I was thinking about Orson and Joseph Cotton. I wasn't thinking about the movie itself. Um Yeah, that's the one Orson <laughs> Wells Condor winner where he's not in blackface. To our, you know, detriment, to be honest. Um it's so fucking weird seeing it's him in so, blackface. It's, um, to be clear for anyone listening, Orson Welles did a production of did a film version of Othello that won the Palme d'Or, where he plays Othello and decides to do it the Shakespearean way. Mm-hmm. It's upsetting to watch. Which is fucked up Good. because before he was doing movies, he did an all black version of was yeah. it Oth- Othello on stage? No, wasn't it Macbeth? Okay, Macbeth, one of the fucking Shakespeare things. I forget which, yeah, but yeah. like he he broke around doing it. Uh, so I I anyway. can't think of anything else at this point. Okay, so I, right. I got seven. All right, hang on, I'll, I'll give you a hint. One, you mentioned Apocalypse Now. Francis Ford Coppola, one of the only one of the few directors to win two Palm Doors. Oh, the conversation. The conversation is in the registry. Uh, the other two very different. Now I mentioned up top, three movies have won the Palm Door and Best Picture. Marty, Parasite, and. The Lost Weekend. Correct. And there's only one more. Shift name. Uh, it is a... How do I... Oh, man. How do I even hint at this? Uh, it's a movie you kind of feel surprised won the Palm. Uh, it won it over Do the Right Thing, I believe, which is what I would give the Palm. But it was part of that... It was like 1989. It was the kickoff of that indie wave. Oh, Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Correct. There we go. Those are the ten movies... Okay. That, uh, won the Palme d'Or and are in the National Film Registry. Now, we have not talked about any of them yet on this show, but obviously, as the show goes on and as the seasons go on, we will talk about all of them, which leads us into saying, guys, stick around. If for some reason this is the first time you've listened to this show, interesting choice. We don't normally talk about Palme d'Or winners, but we will be talking about a lot of these films because we talk about the films inducted into the National Film Registry. The Palme d'Or is uh, an award given out at a film festival that tries to recognize which films are the best and will have longevity. Uh, sometimes they get it right. Sometimes they get it very wrong. Uh, you know, sometimes they give it to Apocalypse Now, a movie we're still talking about today. Sometimes they give it to Scarecrow, a movie 90% of people don't know exists. Um, but the National Film Registry, by virtue of inducting these films at least 10 years after they were released, acknowledges the films that actually do have longevity and have 
cultural relevance. And on this show, what we do is we take a look at the films selected by the National Film Registry and talk about not if, but why they matter. Uh, We have our third season coming up. We'll be talking about a lot of films that are at least adjacent to movies we talked about today. We talked about David Lean, so we will be talking about Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, We acknowledge Roman Polanski's The Pianist. We're going to talk about Roman Polanski's Chinatown. That's going to be a fun one to dance around. Uh, Nothing controversial there. Um, In any event. I'm right into that shit. Yeah. uh, In any event, we're doing a lot of interesting stuff on season three. We have already started booking guests. We're going to start recording soon. Um, So stick around on this feed if this is your first time here. Um, But mainly, I I wanted to wrap this up by saying thank you in a way that uh, kind of kind of got to do at the end of the episode but as we talked about the reason we're doing a pomdor episode is that over on the podcast like it's 1999 podcast feed uh tom and i are on their show discussing 1999's pomdor winner rosetta by the dardan brothers um it's certainly an interesting discussion uh, and we just want to take this time at the end of this to say thank you to kenny to phil uh to the entire show podcast like it's 1999 been great friends of ours you've heard them on our show you're going to hear them again on our show but you know we started podcasting around the same time we've been on this journey together and they went from being a show we listened to a show a show we've been on to people we consider friends so uh phil kenny ernie the whole crew um from all of us here to, to all of you thank you so much for five great years and for a hell of a show uh for having us on it and uh, if you guys have not checked out the show, check it out. Start with the Rosetta episode. Work your way back. Work your way forward. They've had some incredible people on. We were so grateful to be part of that. So check out Podcast Like It's 1999. And make sure you stick around here on your Missing Out for Season 3 for registry picks for all kinds of fun stuff. Guys, thank you so much for joining us. Once again, I'm going to try this, see if it works. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll ditch it before we start Season 3. But uh, once again, I have been Mike. And I am Tom. Thank you guys uh, for joining us here on You're Missing Out.